Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the No Laying Up Podcast. In the final episode for 2022, I am Solly, your host. I have been putting this together for many, many years. I get a lot of feedback from this every year from people that really enjoy listening to it. I'm glad you guys send that in because it is a bear to put together. Uh, but this is our holiday medley. This is our highlight episode of uh, some clips from throughout the year. Now, this was a really weird year in golf, obviously. So uh, we tried really hard not to have this too live heavy. Uh, some stuff kind of gets dated pretty quickly. But there was also some stuff as it related to live or changes to the PGA Tour that I thought was too good to not include at a, at a in a look back of 2022. So there's some fun non-live stories, some, you know, kind of interesting golf nerdy stuff, some stories that will legitimately make you laugh very hard uh, as it did to me when we were interviewing it and listening back to it and editing it. Uh, there's some really good gems in there. But uh, the idea being this is kind of a... a a representation of what this show is like. We always, you know, people ask how they can support the show, how they can help the show. That would be take this, you know, send this episode to someone that maybe doesn't listen to podcasts, maybe doesn't listen to golf podcasts as an example of, you know, interesting content that or content they may find interesting. Who knows? But uh, it's a representation of, uh, you know, not necessarily all of the highlights of the year. There's too much to share in there, but little snips from a lot of the interviews. Um, and we greatly appreciate all the guest time uh, that have helped contribute to this and all the listeners that have listened throughout the year and uh and yeah maybe hopefully it inspires you to also to go back and listen to an episode that maybe you skipped or you hadn't listened back to in a long time so i'll include all the episode numbers uh before all the clips as well so i'm not going to delay it much further than that i do want to give a shout out to our friends at golf blueprint you've heard us talk about golf blueprint if you are just heading to the range and just hitting practice shots without any real plan, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, Doc Darris and the professor, that is who is behind the genius behind Golf Blueprint. Uh, they got indoor and outdoor memberships. They got memberships with practice plans that help suit whatever practice situation you have. Now, listen, I know people are in winter. This is a way to get a leg up on whenever spring comes around. If you're looking for something to do, something to keep you busy, some way to keep your game sharp or make a change in some way to your game, head to golfblueprint.com or you can email info at golfblueprint.com and you know you can set up a gift for someone through that. Uh, these guys are great at giving direct feedback to people on how they can help you with their golf game. We've had a great time with their practice cards and you can use NLU20 for 20% off your first month of membership. Also, you can head to their Instagram at golfblueprint to check out all sorts of content. They got uh, again, I remember my winters in Chicago. I would try to do some kind of drill every offseason so that I could come out and, you know, have have having developed something going into the next warm weather season. So uh, we greatly appreciate Golf Blueprint support. Again, NLU 20 for 20% off your first month. First clip is from our Bay Hill recap. This was our most downloaded episode of the year, thanks to Harry Higgs, who shared this incredible story. We're also going to snip another part of the, of this episode for later on, but it was it really was that good. Episode 527 with Justin Huber and Harry Higgs telling the story of the striptease at Waste Management. I was actually a little irritated that they didn't find me because that was Riv Week, and I think we somehow... I 
flashed my titties. Joel took his shirt off. He and the two of us around oh, like a helicopter. Like exactly. <laughs> but come, I think Wednesday, all this Saudi golf kind of come Wednesday, Joel and I had all the leverage in the world, <laughs> some way, somehow. And I was trying to to convince them, basically to convince them to continue to find us, like continue down this path and find us. And then we're going to publicize the shit out of it. <laughs> Go fund me, all this. We are going to raise so much money for charity. And, you know, basically to pay our fine. But we were just going to pay it ourselves because yep. we fucked up. We'll pay. <laughs> um, and then the, my the immediate thought was me, Joel, and the commissioner. T-shirts that look like you're shirtless. Picture, raise money. And it was, you know, probably either clothing or bre- like breast cancer awareness. Boom, done. You guys do not look like the fun police anymore. It looks like you're you're hilarious. Yeah. You're in with it. And I was actually irritated because I I finally had one good idea that I was going to be able to execute on. And they all I needed them to do was <laughs> find. <laughs> that was it? Oh man, it was that, that was, was still like, beautiful. It really was. It was amazing, a spectacular and I, and moment. I immediately regretted that I did it. The, the little clip and of I Honda when do. you walk by yeah. and the guy flashed yeah, you, and like, you're like, "That's why I didn't want to do it." <laughs> that, is, that is the exact yeah. reason. Like I got down. I I shouldn't have done it. I did not want to do it. I I regret that I did it. But it's but again, it it's incredible what you'll do when thirty thousand people. I mean, this was a thing on. This was a thing on Saturday. I get paired with Keith, and he's like texting me Friday night. We get the text about our pairing. He's like, "What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do?" And I was like, "I don't know. We'll, we'll just. What are we gonna do on 16? And I think that's a text that a lot of guys send, yeah. especially come if you make the weekend and you're playing with a buddy and you Saturday. Yeah, that had to be fun. Saturday, Saturday. Well, I shot 76. It wasn't that fucking fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I get in that morning, we see the same trainer. Me, Keith, and Joel see the same trainer, um, Edward <laughs> Bolt. And Bolt, the Bolt had fun with it. He posted like an Instagram of the two of us, and it's just like bodies by Bolt. <laughs> it's me and it's me and Joel, which, you know, we, we both take pretty good care of our golf bodies. But after that, you know, maybe not that great overall. Um, but I, I saw I was saw I saw Bolt before Keith. I went in there and I like kind of whispers like this guy talking about me. Ah, whatever. I'm just gonna go putt. So I go out and putt, and Keith meets me out there. He's like, "Hey, bro, I got eight grand raised to pay the fine. You take your shirt off on 16." <laughs> Only like, you? Yeah, me. Yeah. Like, Fuck no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, why would I ever do that? And just all day long, all day long, all day long. And I'm making bogeys everywhere. And I'm <laughs> we get to 16, and he hit first, and then looked over at me, and I'm still like, no. Mm-mm, don't don't even don't bring that shit up no um so that day finishes and then i'm you know one of you said it to colt though on t was it you or keith that yeah, mentioned so, it yeah and then we went over colt okay. had said colt had called us friday before hey we're gonna be there come please come over and yeah. say something to us and keith hit and then went over to see them and then i hit it on the green but a mile away from the hole and i went over there to see them and, and then i so I had it in my head, right? He, they've been asking for this shit all day long. Max Homa, who's, you know, he was all over it. You need to do it. You need to do it. You need to do it. <laughs> um, so I went over to Cole, did a, you know, said whatever I said, and then said, if I make that putt, I'm probably going to take my shirt off. But that was more, I, and I, honestly, I probably would have in front of all those people on, on, on Saturday. That day, yeah. that day is like nothing in this world. Yeah. In the entire sporting world, that day is unbelievable. So fast forward, I sign my card for 76 and go home and have a cocktail and, I look at the leaderboard. I'm like, oh, shit. I'm in 65th, and Joel's name is right next to me. <laughs> and how it shook up, it is just, and then the text comes, and it's just just me and Joel. 
Charlie Hoffman and Peter Malnati are behind us. We, you know, it's a twosome, teeing off 10. And then I get a little Twitter notification like an hour later. It's like this fucking guy. I mean, he's already put you a blast. Yeah. If this gets enough retweets, Harry will take his shirt. 10,000 likes or something. Well, I saw it and yeah. I was like, oh, and oh but yeah. he didn't. <laughs> like, 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 like. <laughs> but he didn't put a number to it. So he was like, and then I saw him. We, we both go see Bolt in the morning and we're talking about it. I'm like, dude, fuck off. Like, I'm not doing this. No, 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 no. He's like, I'm like, why did you tweet that? He's like, well, I didn't give it a number. Like, it's no, no one will think that it's going to be the thing. And it's uh, so we go over there and tee off on 10, and I hit it in the fairway. He hits in the fairway, and on the walk down, four people didn't get enough retweets, didn't get enough retweets. <laughs> 10 fairway, 10 green, 11, like every single stop that we made, people are just yelling it. Like, God damn you, Joel. I hate you. And I'm still like, no. And anybody that, if I like, if I could hear them or I could like talk to them safely, I'd be like, nope, it didn't. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And we get to 16, and we tee off. We're both like, you know, go ahead, make noise. We tee off and go, and we're walking down, and then it starts, and everybody's like, I think the first one was show some skin, show some skin, and Joel's over there going, you know, raising the roof, <laughs> make louder, louder, and I'm like, I'm giving it the no, no, no. I'm flipping them off the entire time. <laughs> and then it's continued, continued, continued. And I hit it over the green. I hit a good shot, but I hit it over the green. Um, and I get back there just like, no, I ain't fucking chipping this. I'll give me the putter. <laughs> I putted it. It actually burned the edge. I don't – actually, I think I would have kept my clothes on had the had that one gone in the hole, maybe. Um, but it, it burns the edge and goes to like 10 feet. Joel had 12 feet and left it short. 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 <laughs> and then they started booing him. I'm going like this. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, they forgot about – what they were saying earlier and I he taps in and then I like I'm going to like put my ball down you know and I hear it and it's just like take it off take it off <laughs> so and I'm good. Just, are you shitting me like I still gotta go through my routine and hit this putt and they never once stopped and I swear to god that I, I think it was 10 feet five inches whatever it was I swear they the whole time they're just chanting take it off the whole time no, no one's being quiet obviously it's 16 it's got still no one's quiet at, at all as soon as I hit it, I knew it was in. And I swear to God, the ball took two minutes. To <laughs> it was like, are you going to do it? Yeah, you, no, I'm not going to do it. No, no, yeah, no, that's a bad idea. Uh, no, Here they are. Do it. And it fell in the hole, and I just went. <laughs> and then, so the best part about it was I walk up there to pick my ball out of the hole. My back's to Joel. And as soon as I pick my ball up out of the hole and turn around, he's got it off and he's got it around his head, the whole deal. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, I fucking hate you, Joel, but good man that you did not let me do this shit alone. And then I lost all control. I was like running around, jumping. I think I flashed. It was a again. flash jump. It was, yeah. it was special. It really yeah. was. It was Joel, one of those things that's never going to happen. At that again. point, I turned. I had turned around and saw Joel. And he was doing this and this and this, and then the first beer comes and it <laughs> right at him. And he like step. It was gonna it was gonna fall like five yards short of him. And he like ran on the green to try to catch it. And I was like, oh shit! And I'm running around like looking up. Oh my god! Oh my god! Am I gonna get hit? No, no, no. And that's a that's a bad thing. We, you know, that, that was a little dicey. Yeah, yeah. Plastic cups next year and everything's fine. Um, yeah, somebody can get like severely hurt, and that's not something that should be laughed at. But the entire scene should be laughed yes. at, obviously, that we created. And I guess, I guess the Netflix people were following us 
Al, yes. Al and Gino were mic'd up, and they were there for the whole oh. thing. And I can't remember who it was. I, one of the Netflix guys, we get in the tunnel, you know, 16 green to 17 T. And one of the Netflix guys came up to us after. I was like, ah, oh, this is great. So, But I will spoil just a fraction of it. Um, one of the Netflix guys was like, I never thought when we signed up for this that at one point on the golf course I would hear one of the players that we were following say, like, oh, shit. I gotta put my clothes back on. <laughs> I guess Joel had, had like ran off shirtless and was like, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta put my, I gotta put my clothes back." On. What would have happened if you, you would have caught the beer, chugged it? Because like uh, you'd have won the pip. I, like I just kept seeing Maybe, like when yeah. Sam makes the hole in one and people are chucking beers. Like how yeah. hard is that not to just be like taking well, I mean, the hole in one? Yeah, yeah like yeah. Uh, I think Joel took a sip. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the fine, I thought they were going to call and just totally gloss over the fact that we were, I flashed and Joel was shirtless. I thought they were going to get us at like, Joel, we thought we saw you maybe take a sip of a beer. Yeah. <laughs> and then Harry, you were flipping Joel off the entire time you guys were playing that whole, like, we can't do that on TV. And then again, at that point, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, we know. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Next up is episode 512 with Joel Damon talking about the famous money game with Phil and the guys at Liberty National. You had a, a fun match that was played this past fall that got hyped pretty big, but I want to hear, you know, you yeah. had a, how did the pairing with Phil come about? You know, how did the match with you, you know, you and him against Keith Mitchell and Harry Higgs at the Northern Trust come about? And uh, really, I want to know like what the buildup was like, because I know that guy had to be texting you motivational quotes like <laughs> weeks in advance. <laughs> uh yeah it's kind of funny i don't know exactly how it worked but i saw harry tweeted phil and i'm pretty good buddies with harry and i it was like midnight like i was drinking and i texted harry and phil in like his group chat and i'm like hey guys i want to get on this match hmm. and next thing i know i wake up in the morning and phil's like all right me and you Joel, harry find a partner and i was like whoa i was kind of expecting to be on harry's team because i always want to play against phil and kind of you know i want him to talk crap to me and uh you know i i kind of want to be on that side of things but then you know keith loves playing for money and whatever so they grabbed each other and all of a sudden phil's on my team so we had there was a couple texts about you know how's your game get like kind of like building this up like it was a bigger deal and uh obviously kind of all in fun um and I, I was scrambling around at multiple ATMs the morning of to try to grab all the cash. Has to <laughs> be could, cash. Uh, had to be cash. I assume you just pay on the spot. Um, and Harry did, thankfully, nicely. So it was good. I was afraid of losing. But um, I, we got, so the first hole, I kind of, oh, Gino gave me a wrong number on the first hole. Mm. I had a per he, <laughs> he lasered it with a bad number. So... Uh, and then Harry made an eight footer. And then on two, we both have like 40 feet and I'm right in front of Phil. So Phil hits it and he's like, all right, last break. Then we have 40 feet, like up a tier that breaks three feet. And I miss it by like six inches. He's like, dude, I told you you didn't break that much. And I'm like, Phil, if you think I'm that good from 40 feet, we got a problem today. <laughs> so I was already like, okay, on three, we hit it out there and uh, he hits a bad drive. He hacks out. He's got like 50 yards for birdie. I hit a good wedge into four feet. Phil and, or, and Harry and Keith have like 10, 12 footers for birdie. So I stuff it in there. Phil walks me down. Is it my, you know, he puts his arm around me, walks me down in the green and goes, Joel, you know, like, you know, let's, let, let's get into these guys. We're not fucking losing today. Let's 
let's, you know, we got to change your attitude right now. We got to get, you know, focus. Let's dial this in. He goes, all right, you're going to putt first because I'm away. I'm, you know, he's 50 yards away. You're going to putt first, but do not putt this unless you're guaranteed to make it. And it's like a four footer. That's like outside left edge downhill. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to make it. So he like, he goes through the entire read. I'm like, isn't it just outside left hit? And he's like, tell me this whole thing. I'm like, thankfully I make the putt. And it, and then I, they make it on top. So we're still one down, but then, Phil, like, you know, completely starts coaching me up on every shot, like to the moon, tell me I'm the greatest player alive. Tell me why we're going to beat these guys. Uh, and then I went on an absolute run. I think I made seven or eight birdies that day and he made an eagle on the sixth hole from another fairway. Uh, and we kind of, we, we beat him up pretty good, but uh, I couldn't believe how into the match he was. I couldn't believe how much he was coaching me up. I couldn't believe like, it was kind of cool for me. I mean, growing up with Phil's like, you know, one of my, it's incredible to watch this guy growing up and now he's like putting his arm around me and tell me how great I am and how we're going to beat these guys. It's like, I didn't expect that, but it was pretty awesome. I was uh, like that. I feel like Phil as your partner is like that gif of uh Draymond green pumping up Kevin Durant. Like that, that always goes yes. around and hyping him mm -hmm. up. Like that's what yes. it feels like. Phil will turn a 10 handicap into a scratch golfer overnight. I assure you of that. And like the way that he reads the greens, like we would come to the same kind of conclusion of like a right edge putt. But the way that he got there was a lot different than the way you and me get there, which is super interesting to me. But uh, uh, I was just super impressed overall with everything. Like, he couldn't have been a better partner. Uh, he didn't play his best, but uh, luckily those guys didn't either. And I kind of got hot that day. So uh, I, I could see how, like, what he took Keegan Bradley under his wing, like at the Ryder Cup or something. No, there's no, I mean, Keegan would win 19 majors if Phil caddied for him every week, I think. Like, it's just, it's amazing. Uh, like, and this is just a little fun game for him on a Tuesday. Like, I couldn't imagine, like, what it really is, you know, a Ryder Cup or something like that. Is the amount you're playing for comfortable, uncomfortable? Where's that line? Is it? I had never played for that much in a day. Gotcha. Um, I mean, I don't play for a ton, but, I mean, I, was, I didn't want to lose, that's for sure. It wasn't, like, anything. I mean, it wasn't uncomfortable. It's like if you lose, like, you're – but I was like, this is, this is real golf. So, uh, for Phil – probably pennies but uh for the rest of us yeah I, we really cared i mean i typical, tried really hard typical i mean every tour pro answers this the same way like a putt that would involve you losing ten thousand dollars makes you more nervous than a putt that would mean getting an extra one hundred thousand on the 18th green a hundred percent yeah, yeah. And I, it's that. exactly what it is it would be coming out of my wallet yep. not just gaining less money from the tour per se and that's <laughs> i didn't really understand that until because i'm like you know uh last hole just last week i had like a 10 footer for birdie on 18 and gina's like if you make this it's worth five thousand dollars <laughs> and i was like i don't care like just let's just get out of here and then i kind of got reading the putt i'm like this is for five thousand dollars like this is a lot of money what are you doing and i made it luckily and he was correct it was actually worth five thousand dollars so um it was like those things but if you're if i'm could lose five thousand dollars if i don't make it it's a complete it's really scary it like, shouldn't be, but it's different. I, I, it's I, completely I, different. So um, it's a lot it's, of lunches at the Ritz. If you get make that extra, that's hit. a lot of lunches at the Ritz. That's for sure. <laughs> is that a normal 18th hole thing for Gino to tell you how much the putt's worth? If we're not, yeah, a lot of times. Or sometimes I'll even ask him. Like I'll be like, "Hey, like, what's this worth?" Um, it's if you're not winning or if you're not really like, it's easy to break it down into money, and that's gonna be like, "Hey, dude, if you can shoot three under on this back nine, you're gonna make an extra 30k." Like. Oh, that's a lot of money. I should try to do that.
Um, so if you think about it, like it's, it helps me kind of stay motivated for the last couple of holes or whatever it is. And, um, I think really he's just being, you know, kind of selfish cause he wants more money for himself. So, uh, I think that's really what it is. Uh, but he's somehow motivating me into making him more money. Next up episode 516 with Adam Scott talking about his relationship with Stevie Williams. Over 72 holes at a place like Augusta. Is there any estimation as to how many little, how, how many shots he can, he can help you save and, and in what ways, right? Example, that's a very clear example of that, but you know, is there anything else you can think of in terms of Augusta or just having him on the bag in a major championship and at any location? What, what is the benefit for somebody that is so in tune with golf like you? What can a caddy who's not hitting the shots change? Uh, well, he just has to really complement your style of play. Obviously, that's, you know, it's like a relationship out there. It really is. And if you're not hearing the right things, it's not going to go so well. So he has to understand you know, how you're playing on a particular day and then how aggressive he might want to talk you into some stuff or out of some stuff, potentially. But little things, I mean, another example from Augusta, and I'm, I'm just picking random ones. You know, I hold the putt on 18 in regulation, the 72nd hole, a big celebration. I felt like I'd won the Masters. You know, I could have won the Masters with that. And, you know, I calm down and we're walking to the back of the green. Leash has putted out. And he says to me, this isn't over yet. That was the first thing he said to me after all, all of that. And it didn't let me switch off and relax. Like my, the work may not be done. And sure enough, Cabrera hit it to like two feet and out we go again. And, you know, a little thing like that, it was a great comment. He could tell I was so excited and probably looking around thinking I was thinking about slipping the jacket on or whatever was going to happen. And, uh, you know, his comment, you know, he's still switched on. And so those little kind of things go a long way. And, uh, you know, he had a great understanding for the game of golf and how it was played at majors watching Tiger win. But those other little things, he had a good feel for his timing was good. And I think, I think great caddies have great timing. Yeah, I think he was the first caddy to ever win a PGA Tour event, right? At, at Bridgestone after uh, his... his... <laughs> that was his greatest victory, if I, if I remember rightly. He held it out on 70, the 72nd hole, right? What was, what was that aftermath like? Because that was, you know, for the listeners that may not remember, that was shortly after he separated with Tiger Woods. He's on your bag. You win the Bridgestone and television cameras go up and interview him on the 18th green and he gives yeah. quite an interview. What, did that bother you at all? How that played out at all? Or did you guys have a conversation after that? It, it didn't bother me. You know, in all these things, you weigh up the pros and the cons and without getting into Tiger and Steve so much, I think he was just almost letting off a little steam. You know, I, I think he, he said in interviews, he just felt he was just disappointed with the whole ending to what their incredible relationship was. And he was probably hurt at that point. And, <laughs> you know, whether it's right or wrong or childish or not, he was, you know, just trying to have a shot at Tiger, <laughs> you know, a bit of a cheap shot at Tiger, which was a, a funny thing to do. It For me, it didn't really take any of the gloss off what I felt I did there, you know, even there again, and to go back, circle back. Uh, on the final hole, I think I had a two-shot lead and I wanted to hit a seven-iron in the middle of the green and he just looked at me and said, it was a perfect number for a six, just hit it straight at the pin. I think I hit it to three feet, <laughs> one by three. You know, it's that timing and the sense of delivery, but 
he said a few things over the years <laughs> working with me that that certainly created created some trouble and and that's Steve you know he passionate about the game and passionate about stuff and opinion he's opinionated and yeah I didn't muzzle him quite as much as Tiger did maybe <laughs> well would he ever I mean he was obviously all the years of experience he had on Tiger's bag did any of the Tiger specific experience get translated over to you would he say things to you like listen you're not doing like Tiger did this to to get better at this this and this you need to be doing any of this was he that kind of involved in your game did you basically did you you know, his experience with Tiger directly, did that dra- did you draft off that at all? Well, I tried to. I mean, I'd be a fool not to. Like, right. what was he doing here? What was he doing there? He would never say, Tiger did this, you should do this. He caddied for me for three weeks, and then he said, okay, I'm going to, I can come and work for you full time, because um, I was kind of loaning him at that point. But he said, your short game's average, he's three putt too much, and something else. <laughs> He said, so you got to fix that. And that was it. It wasn't like you should try and do this. He was like, that's it. That's what my assessment is after three weeks. Uh, and I kind of took that to heart and I went, and I went and worked on that and tried to get better, obviously. But definitely, we, I picked his brain a lot about how Tiger played at majors. And, you know, there were a lot of things. But Steve was one of the final pieces of the puzzle for me to lift my game to play at the highest level I would say and and we used a lot of similar strategy uh that he and Tiger used at major championships and for a period there I was certainly one of the most consistent performers at majors with Steve on the bag well drafting off that as well tell us about uh yeah a a line that I heard you say somewhere about uh, you played with Tiger when you were an amateur and uh how that made you think of your your professional career (laughs) after that what was that what was that initial experience like playing with Tiger as a youngster it was incredible the Sunday before the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in 2000 I was still an amateur but I decided to turn pro and I'd been given an invite on the European tour the week after that Pebble Beach U.S. Open and Tiger came to Las Vegas to see Butch just before going up to Pebble Beach and he said you can go and play with Tiger and I was nervous obviously and I played okay the front nine and I was one down and then he just kind of stepped it up a gear and he flew it onto a green or I didn't fly on but it went on a green at 375 yards on uh, the 10th and this is in the year 2000 so <laughs> it was a big hit I think he went something like five birdies and an eagle for the first six holes on the back nine. And that was the end of our match. And he shot 63 and fairly windy. It was a course record. And I walked off and felt like, well, I don't have much of a chance if they all play like that on the tour. Unfortunately, he won the US Open by 15. So it kind of was a good thing for me to see. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable. I I, I love sitting and telling stories of what it was like playing with Tiger and watching Tiger play at that time because I got to play with him a lot in 2000, 2001 and 2002. And I don't know if you want to call that the height of his powers, but it was, if it wasn't, it it was pretty unbelievable. And the control over every area of his game, I just, I'll be amazed if that we see someone else separate like he was able to ever again. Next up, episode 518 with J.R. Smith talking about his transition into college golf.
It sounds like school was the number one motivation. When did golf enter the picture, right? You're playing at North Carolina A&T now. Like, was it, you know, a 50-50 thing? Was it kind of like, well, I'm going back. I might as well play golf. I'm fascinated by this process. So I was playing golf with uh, uh, C.J. Paul, Chris Paul's brother. And we are playing in L.A. I was, I was living in L.A. at the time, uh, working out, trying to stay ready for the league and whatnot. And... Um, but I would play golf every day. So my, my regiment was I would work out at like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., Chris Johnson. And then after that, I would play golf pretty much all day because my kids are in Jersey. So, you know, playing golf with him, he's from Carolina. He's from uh, – Chris has been doing, you know, a lot of things with uh, HBCUs. And I wanted to go to an HBCU if, uh, more than anything. So once I once I enrolled and, you know, told him that I was going to Carolina A&T, they got so many ties and stuff down there in Carolina. It was like, man, you should play golf. I was like, bro, I thought about it. I thought about it so many times, like playing, you know, playing golf on the on the, on the college level or just, just, just like competing or whatever. But then I was like, man, I want to play football. He's like, man, the hell with that? Play golf. <laughs> you, you love golf. You play golf all day, every day, whatever. You good. I was like, man, you think that uh, you think I'll make the team? Like these dudes probably some sticks. He was like, man, I'm telling you, all you gotta do is play a game. I said, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna put a call in. I'm gonna see what see what's going on. And then he put a call into one of the the basketball coach and him is real tight. And he talked to the golf coach, and the golf coach was like, I mean, we ain't gonna, we're gonna have a scholarship for him, or whatever. So he's like, coach, I don't think he's worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> he don't worry about that. He's like, all right, well, let me see if he can play. And then uh, Coach and I played, and then after that, it just took off. Well, I mean, what was your competitive golf experience to that point? When did you start playing golf? When did you – I mean, competitive golf and casual golf are two di totally, totally different things. So, what? I mean, that, that, there's, there's a steep curve there. Yeah, it's completely different. Um, for me, when I first started playing, it's been, what, 13 years now. Rashard Lewis had a golf event, or he, he his first foundation event – was a golf outing. So we were all working out with John Lucas in, in Houston um, at the time. And, you know, TJ Ford and his guys were like, yeah, we're going to Richard's uh, golf golf tournament. Come on, man, or whatever, whatever. I'm like, man, I don't play golf. Like, my pops and my brother plays or whatever. I don't play golf. Like, whatever, I'm going to get an extra 100 shots. They're like, no, 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 come on, come on. So they convinced me to go out there. So I go out there, and um, they tell me, he's like, man, you ain't got to play. Like, you just ride around on a cart, you know, take shots, whatever. They got, they got girls out there, all this stuff. So they got cart girls and whatnot. So I'm out there just having a good time. It's a sunny day in Houston. Moses Malone, John Lucas, Clyde Drexler, Hakeem Olajuwon came out there. Like, all these Houston legends and Hall of Famers and stuff. And I think Dr. J came. And I'm just like, I'm in, for me, as growing up as a kid, I'm in basketball heaven just at casual though it's like the the temperature of the water is so easy nobody's in the gym a totally different environment and i was really feeling a vibe and moses malone i got a thing with hall of famers i just can't when they tell me something i, I don't tell them no like they tell me, young fella go give me this water i mean you hall of fame i got no respect i got you you know like that's just the way i was you know my pops put me got me like that he's like man young fella you over here laughing joking whatever talking talking shit come hit this ball I'm like, man, I ain't playing. Ah, come on. I go out there. He shows me how to hold the club. I'm watching everybody swing. It's like five people in a group because it's like a, he was a celebrity in his group. First time I get up there, I hit it 300 yards down the fairway. Crush Stop. it. Crush it. He's like, everybody's looking. I'm like, man, this is easy. Talking shit. <laughs> Tell the club, walk off, get in the golf cart, peel off. 
So I'm gloating the whole day. I'm bragging, talking, <laughs> telling the other groups, whatever Moses is telling the other groups. I'm feeling good. So I pulled back up on his group. He's like, man, young fella, you can't do it again. Hit, hit it again. I couldn't even hit the ball, bro. <laughs> that sounds more like it. After that, I got hooked. I was I bought like three sets of clubs that day. Uh, I bought I had like the first clubs I bought was like the Nike Sasquatch, I think it was. And then I got like these tailor-made like R7s or something like that. And then I got some Titleist. It was just like, it was on and on. Now I got a garage full of clubs. <laughs> I'm going back and forth to the PGA store selling shit. But there's a whole lifestyle around like professional athletes transitioning into like a life of golf of some kind. I mean, not a lot. Of, no one's really going the route that you're going. But man, people gravitate towards pro-ams, charity golf events. And it just see that's what I, I don't. I mean, I understand the appeal of golf. Golf is my life. I freaking love it. But I guess what in your mind, what 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 draws professional athletes to this sport as a, as a pastime once your you know playing career in your main sport is over? I think it's the the overall competition of it. You know, it's like even if you even if you're not playing against anybody else, you're playing against yourself. You're competing to be great every single day. Like, and it's like for for people who've played at the highest levels of their sports and been on the highest you know stages. I think that's the uh, a, something we chase. You know, it's a it's a feeling that we chase when you hit that perfect swing and have that perfect shot. When I'm playing in the college tournaments, I think of every shot that I take as if you know, I'm playing in the actual NBA game. You know, if I got a corner three, I'm looking, you know, certain drives and putts and stuff like that. And it's just like the, the level of concentration is completely different when you're playing with your boys and you're just out there, you know, playing uh, <laughs> $50 Nassau's or whatever and whatnot, opposed to when you got to put everything out for your team and, you know, everything counts. It's just like, it's funny because one of the one of the kids on the other at another school, he caught me like it was like the fifteenth hole, and I almost forgot where I was at. Like I almost just like, you know, scooped it up and was like, oh. <laughs> when you're not used to that environment and in that setting, it's just it can be it's an uncomfortable situation. So, but for for again for for professional athletes and people who've been at the top of their sports or game and whatever. And a lot of, especially like, you know, a lot of businessmen are like that as well. You've been so successful on wall street and whatever else you think you could do anything. And then when you get out there on that golf ball and you can't do it, it's like, it's a, it's a very, it's a very frustrating game, but it's a beautiful game. I love it. Next up episode 522 with Hughes Norton, Tiger Woods, first agent telling some stories of uh, being an agent in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties. So is it is it fair to say that Norman would be on the opposite end of the spectrum on that one? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, I mean, he's he's gone through a lot of stuff, and we've all followed it since. I mean, he's he's just convinced that he's a business czar. There was a you know a tycoon in business, and he kind of knows it all. It was a great exchange when he first was on his own. I got this secondhand um, from the guy that ran our operation in Australia, but um, the big uh, Australian business magnate named Kerry Packer ran the the biggest broadcasting syndicate in the country of Australia. Very wealthy, successful guy, and he was a very blunt and to the point individual. And Greg got to be friends with him, and one day Greg goes into Carrie's office. They're sitting there talking. So the story goes and Greg's talking about all the businesses that he's going to set up and how he's going to staff them all and do this and do that. And there was a pause and Carrie Packer putting his feet up on his desk, which he'd like to do, leaned back in his chair and supposedly said, 
Norman, if you want to be a businessman, you got to wear a fucking suit. (laughs) (laughs) Which was, again, that's the distinction between you're a great golfer or you're a great basketball player. Hard enough to do that at the top of your craft all the time. Don't try to do the thing that comes over a lot of them, Chris, quite honestly, is when you're so successful in one sphere of life and and this is a big and you are most often surrounded by friends and associates who tell you everything you say and believe is right on and true. You get to thinking I'm as good a businessman as I am a golfer, or I'm as good a musician, I can be, you know, I'm LeBron James, I can go into music or whatever the situation is. And I always used to tell my clients, the one thing I would tell them on a regular basis, and since I got fired by both Norman and Tiger after 12 years, maybe this wore a little thin, I said to myself, because I sense this, you can see it all the time with friends of theirs in their hometowns, around. once a week, you've got to tell your big clients, that they're absolutely full of shit. (laughs) And unless you can do that, there's nobody that brings, frequently the wives will do that, but not always. And you have to make sure there's some perspective here because you get all this success at the top of the food chain and you lose it. You've said it way better than I could and what we're sensing among some people in professional golf of, you know, well, I've done this, this, and this for so many years and everyone's, you know, kissed my ass everywhere I've gone. Like, how could I be wrong about this? And, oh my gosh, you just, if you spend enough time, you know, around people that are yes men or are telling you exactly what you want to hear, your perspective on the world is bound to change no matter what. And uh, yeah, so so tell us about, I don't know if we skip right to the end of Norman, but it sounded like, you know, he he was he wanted to take a lot of credit for deals that you guys had helped him with or what happened there with, you know, with Co- I think it was Cobra back in the day. I, I you know, there's various reports, but I'd love to hear your side of it. Well, you can get a sense for when relationships start to sour. I guess I'm an expert on that based on my track record. <laughs> but, um, you know, one time at Reebok, Reebok, the chairman of Reebok in those days, a guy named Paul Fireman, very uh, difficult guy, very egocentric as well. And we're up there for a meeting on some style issues and Norman's line and stuff. And all of a sudden I see that Greg and firemen are having a private meeting. And that's very often the kiss of death. Um, So that's when you kind of know things are going downhill. Cobra, that's too long a story to go into, but basically Tom Crow, who's an Australian great guy, Um, ran Cobra and had a guy who was running the business side of it, who didn't like agents in general. And I guess particularly didn't like me. And so then they started doing it. Let's Greg, let's make this deal ourselves. And by the way, that's always out there. No matter what your relationship is with the client, there are people who will, and Nike did this with Tiger to their everlasting shame. They not to jump ahead, but long after the process was established between the relationship with Tiger and me and his dad, toward the end, I'd been to Nike 10 times trying to figure out what's a fair deal for this kid, you know, if and when he turns pro, just general discussions, nothing specific. At the very 11th hour, they sent an African-American gentleman directly 
who I'd never met from within Nike to Tiger's house. Hey, let's just do this deal with us. You don't need Hughes Norton. You don't need anybody in between. And that's, that's when a relationship is tested. And to his everlasting credit, Earl Woods called me, told me what had happened. And he said that he had told this guy from Nike, hey, go back and tell Phil Knight, you got to trust somebody. And we trust Hughes. Next up, a couple stories from Colin Morikawa from episode 526. You changed some of your equipment in between weeks before winning the Open Championship. Tell me about what you learned in week one that helped you in week two. Yeah, so let's see. I'm going to go back even before that. It was like two weeks before playing at the U.S. Open, Torrey Pines, Poe, Kakuya, and I'm striping. Like, I'm hitting my driver, hitting my irons, fantastic. And I'm like, okay, game feels amazing. Head over Scottish, and I'm in the middle of the fairway a bunch of times with a nine iron, and I start hitting it to 45 feet. And I'm like looking at my caddy. I'm like, <clears throat> I'm like trying to think. We go to the range, and I start blaming my clubs like everyone else, right? And you know, I'm, I'm sure my caddy has heard this a million times from other players. And the the tailor made reps are like, okay, whatever. Like, sure, like let's blame the clubs. Like, and I just felt like my swing was so where I wanted it to be that all I could do was blame it on the clubs. <laughs> Like it was weird, right? Like, and, and you never want to blame it on your clubs. You never want to blame it on your equipment, but it just didn't feel right. It didn't, my arms, my, my short arms, my blades weren't feeling right through the turf. And Monday morning we get to the open and I was like, okay, let me just try the P7 MCs, which I had in my five, my six and five iron, which I felt like I was hitting it. Okay. But I just didn't have that many shots with that um, at the Scottish and uh, put it in, started hitting center of the face and was like, okay, we're good to go. And it was like, so it was the equipment. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was the equipment. It, it, there's something to it with how it digs in the turf, which, you know, people, you have to be able to create speed and, and, you know, compress the ball. But it was just so funny because I could just tell the face. On, you know, I, I, I could look at my caddy's face that week of the Scottish while I was blaming my, my golf clubs. He was just like, sure, sure. You know, I've seen you, you know, not hit it well. Like, you know, let's, let's keep your foot down. Let's stay a little more down on it. You know, I, I could tell like he was just buying into my you know, BS about what I was trying to say. Dude, that makes total, total sense to me. That's what, like, <laughs> That's what everyone needs like, to do. Right. But it, it is such a different style of golf. And I'm always amazed at how fast people flip the switch and, and switch to that style of golf because like, PGA Tour golf is almost all airborne. I mean, this is very obvious, but like you got to get it up in the air. The more you carry it, the better. Whereas like the first time you stand on a tee with a crosswind that you need to get the ball out of the air as fast as possible and running, it's just a different test. And I know you guys are the best players in the world for a reason, but it just seems like it would identify different players than it, but it, it seems like we see the same players rise up when we, when we see that yeah. style of play. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's not like the, the clubs immediately helped me hit the ball lower and hit it exactly where I wanted, but now gave I you a trust, feel, but now exactly now I could feel the center of the face and then I could work the ball from there. So it was like, it was such a big thing about finding center of the face. And I, I think, you know, we do that every year with changing drivers, right? Like I love the stealth driver that I'm using this year. Like it is, it is so good. It was an easy transition, but even then, like I still had to learn how to hit the center of the face. Cause it's just, it's just different. And everywhere you go, you know, turf, like you just have to find the center of the face again and again and again. And that's just like, it's a learning thing. And I don't like to blame my clubs cause I feel like it's always on me but this was like the one time where I was like sold on, I have to change irons. Like if I didn't change irons, 
I would have gone crazy for those two weeks. I understand you. Did you learn this uh, directly from the goat, the draw chip? JT told me about this like four years ago, like try putting draw action on your chips. I read that in the Golf Digest article. Oh, Does that sound <laughs> no, I should not. I should not. Yes. yes okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not a thing? No, it is. It is a thing. And for me, like, I, man, the, the tailor-made photo shoot days when, you know, Tiger wasn't here this year, but the past couple of years when he has been there, like my ears and eyes are just glued to him. Cause he just like, he just kind of spills a little knowledge. And I know he didn't do this when he was younger because he was just beating everyone else and didn't want to give a little tidbit, but like, there's so like, I, I did a little, like not a clinic. I did, I did a little video with TaylorMade with me and him hitting iron shots. And it was like, I was just, my jaw was to the floor. Like I was, that was the first time, like when I met Tiger, you know, I, I, I will always remember where I met him, but that little 10 minute stretch of us hitting irons, I was just like, oh man, like, all right, maybe I am doing something good. Like he's doing this. Like <laughs> I like this, <laughs> but yeah, like chipping wise, I've learned how to chip a lot more efficiently, a lot better, especially in grainy lies. The way this draw chip works is that it, you're pretty much just shallowing it out, right? And especially in grain, you just don't want to have the leading edge go in. Um, Marco Mira has helped me a lot on putting. And Paul Azinger, I got like a 15, 20-minute lesson before I won the WGC at, con uh, at concession last year. Um, he gave me a chipping lesson. And I still use it to this day. So, I mean, those two guys, I owe so much credit to. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Walker Trolley. If you don't know, the Walker Trolley Cape is the number one premium push cart in the market. It brings a classic style with an ample use of modern technology. True story, I was playing golf uh, with a new friend the other day. He saw my Walker Trolley, asked what it was. He took a picture of the, you know, of the name on my, on my push cart Next time I saw him, he said he went home and bought one. He's got one on the way. It really is that great of a product, and it really catches everyone's eye when you bust that thing out of your trunk. It takes like two seconds to set up. It's incredible. And if you love the classic style of the Walker Trolley Cape 1.5, you're going to love the new Cape 1.5F now with run-flat tires. It's the same great trolley with the look and feel you love. Their polished aluminum frame and wax canvas leather creates a trolley that stands out all over the golf course. Now, Walker Trolley has extended its holiday sale through New Year's Eve on the Cape 1.5 and the 1.5F. And if Santa does not bring you a trolley this year, there's still time to save on the one gift you want. Get your trolley now for $359, their lowest price of the year, and also enjoy 25% off on soft goods and accessories. So visit walkertrolleys.com today if you want to walk the course in style and bring your game to a new level for 2023. walkertrolleys.com. Back to the highlights. Next up is, again, from episode 527 with Harry Higgs, a little different tone from the uh, first story we heard from him talking about changes to the PGA Tour and ongoing things. Remember, this is from March 2022 as all things were unfolding. The converse, like, there is nothing off the table in terms of what the PGA Tour may or may not do in coming years. There's, there's no structure changes that are off the table. Yes. As of right now, it seems to be that that is exactly the path that we're going. It's just whether or not we can kind of – all come to an agreement enough to to appease everybody within the organization. That's yeah. all the players. I mean, it's every single one of them has to be thought of. And, you know, in theory, they should all be heard from. You know, that's the pack is designed so guys can come to me with their grievances or they can go to the tour. They don't have to just come to me, but but share there. And then I have to take that into the room, right? I mean, I have to, well, so-and-so you know, brought up a good point here. And it's hard too because we are, we're all so individual. None of us want to be bothered when we're playing golf tournaments, but we're all together when we're playing golf tournaments. 
Um, I think all of us need to collectively do a better job of speaking with one another and not just going rogue and, you know, trying to leverage whatever it is, leagues, anything. Like, we can all speak to each other like grown-ass men and come to agreements amongst ourselves because, oh, shit, yeah, we actually control what goes on around here to, to you know, almost 90% of it. And then some of the shit that we don't control, we don't want control of. Yeah. Like, we are never going – no union – like none of that nonsense, because then we got to go and negotiate with host organizations and everything to have them pay the purse. Like none of that stuff. But we can we can all do a much better job of communicating to, with one another. Like we're out there playing golf. Yeah, maybe do it off the tee box where the microphones are or something. But like, hey man, have you heard the thought? You heard the new proposed structure and all this? You got any? I mean, there's 144 of us most weeks. You know, you got any idea of and and most of us are pretty smart. I wouldn't put myself in the smart category, but most of us are actually really, really smart. Got any idea of, of how that would work? What, you know, is anything, are there red flags in it for you? Like, the problem is the tour throws all this shit out there. They try to communicate at their best, and then none of us talk to each other about it. Uh, no, my agent's talking to some yeah. of those agents. Those guys, I love my agent. Everybody loves their agent. But those guys have to feed their family too. Like we need to make these decisions ourselves because we are the ones in charge of ourselves. That was the big irritation with Phil. Phil, stop. If you had sat, if you were in the room with us the last three years, I think he has sat on our player advisory council, you know, forever ago. If you were in the room with us and you brought this shit up, we could have done it right then and there. We could have fixed it right then and there. We can change rules right then and there, whatever we want to do. It's just whether or not it's a good idea for all the members. If you were in the room or you ever sat in player dining or you ever talked to somebody like a normal human being and asked their thoughts on some things and then gave your opinions on other things and then came, you know, had a debate, came to a conclusion about something, this would have been fine. A lot of this stuff was, and I think he probably would have realized, huh, I can keep my mouth shut. A lot of these things are already changing. Hmm. Harry Higgs for president. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I've always thought. He has a it great can't be that name hard of a job to be it a president. It just can't be. <laughs> well, and that's where I, uh, you know, the numbers that are being thrown out and the idea of giving the tour this quote unquote personality, like calling the tour something other than it being you players yeah. is where I'm so confused. Like I get it, but it makes it sound like that PJ tour executives are hoarding a pile of cash down in the data yeah. underneath the data lake. I can guarantee you they're not. <laughs> and so yeah. if he's saying there's $20 billion in digital assets or, you know, all this media rights stuff or any of that, it, it seems like so here. Okay. Media rights. Here's the big <laughs> issue. <laughs> Phil, would you like to, or anybody, but I guess, you yeah. know, Phil has mentioned it. So we'll go with Phil. Phil, would you like to control your own media rights? Yes, I would. Okay, well, now, Phil, you, here you go. you got to hire people to, to get them out there, all this stuff. But think of it now, Phil. You have just lessened the product for everybody else. Everybody. So now all of your fellow contemporaries are and, – and it's and it's absolutely Phil's right to do that if this was – you know, this is a hypothetical, but if this was something that would be considered, it's absolutely his right to go take them, make oodles of money, and hurt everybody else. I, I truly don't think – I mean, there probably at some point in the next decade will be some sort of qualifier to where you can, you know, do media rights, this, this, and this. I, th this is a space I really don't know a whole lot about. But those that want to take them or control them, 
lessen the product for everybody else. Now this new TV deal, this shiny new TV deal that gets the Players' Championship purse to $20 million, gets the Corn Ferry purses in three years, hopefully to a million. Well, that's all got to go away. We got to redo how we do it. Less money for everybody else now because so-and-so wanted their media rights. And look, this is, again, golf is kill what you eat or eat what you kill. Yeah, eat what yeah. you kill. And that's fine. I don't have I don't have any problem with anybody getting more money. I am absolutely of the thought that the top players in the world are undercompensated for what they bring to events. But it's been this way for a long time. Doesn't mean things shouldn't change or tweak. I hate the, well, that's the way we've always done it. That's the worst fucking answer in the world. <laughs> but maybe just take a second and think of that. Maybe just even the hassle that it would be for you to get these meteorites out there. And if Phil's the only one that takes them, then we can probably just bully him out of him being worth anything anyway. And it's, all right, well, we'll just get rid of his, and now we can use everybody else's, right? And there, the tour's already doing things. Again, they, they have many programs that I lifted my shirt up in what? Phoenix. You did? Um, in case anybody <laughs> forgot. Can I, quick tidbit, <laughs> I got a text from a buddy during this, and he said, Hube, ask Harry if I can have one of his chest hairs to keep slash frame. Been on my bucket list since he and Joel tore up 16 at Waste Management. <laughs> I don't know how Sent that his goes, address but... and said, I'll cover shipping. <laughs> <laughs> how do you ship it? I, I, I don't, don't know. know. We can figure it out. Yeah. But like, so I did that, and there are avenues that are being worked on to be put in place to where that I can sell, I think it was this NFT deal, which still I don't know anything about. I can sell something, some sort of digital asset and partner with the tour and make money off flesh in my titties. Like, we'll buy. <laughs> how in the world is the is the PGA Tour not doing you know, like not doing a good enough job for everybody, right? They are doing their best. It is an organization that is literally just organized to funnel us money. That's, That's the it. whole thing. And they are they are working day and night to funnel as many of us as possible, especially top players, as much money as possible. They're doing a great job. Sure. If somebody wants guaranteed money and wants to go play in another league, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. But don't air out all this, most of it, fake, dirty laundry on the tour and hurt the overall product and hurt your fellow contemporaries. I, I'm I, quite, I mean, I mean, I know everybody at Riv. I'm really fucking tired of it. I yeah. mean, it's nonsense. Stop doing it. You're hurting everybody, and we've seen how it also hurts your individual too. Yeah, that's mm. well said. Mm. I mean, it. Uh, I don't. It's like all the takes I, I had were just. Yeah. Like, means we a, all means think a lot this, more. Yeah, means a lot more coming from you. I'm interested in you know, d is there any way that Phil's going to twist this into you know this this thing you're talking about flashing your titties for money? Um, can't believe it's a real sentence. It was just said on this podcast, but uh, oh, but it is. is that like something that Phil's gonna be like? See, I'm taking I'm taking credit for that. That was my idea to do NFTs of these highlights, or you know, is the tour sitting on a ton of money in digital highlights that they're not getting the most out of? Is that a fair critique? Uh, that could certainly be the case. Sure, okay. and and um, I would say that would more than again. Uh, this is a space I know so little on, but my opinion is that it probably has been like that for a long time. Sure. But shit's changing, right? And they may be sitting on it, but they don't know what to do with it. Well, but so and sitting on it, and it is a little different than like when you take it to these are your media partners, and you say you have access to all of this shit, all of these highlights plus the live golf. People pay more, so yeah. they're not sitting on it, right? They're using all this stuff to leverage popular word nowadays, yeah, 
these media their media partners to give them more money. Gotcha. And, and it's not like they're actively doing it and screwing. They're not using these media yeah. shots of you and lining their pockets. It's not like they're yeah. doing yes. that well, right now. That money goes to the tour players. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and, like it's not like they're just secretly doing this and be like, ooh, I just made a million off of Harry flashing. Yeah. Like, and that's not happening. So there's no, there's nothing anywhere that says that I can't have, well, I have, there's a limit on how many logos I can have. Eight. But we don't have to, we don't have to play in blank shirts, right? So all those highlights, all that, this great platform they provide, if you want to go do the work or, you know, your agent wants to go do the work, Go tattoo this stuff all over you, and you can line your pockets that way. Yep, it's a and they get yeah. It, there's plenty. So, of, so how is you know how is this bad? How right. is this? Yes, hundred percent. There are things that are still in need of change. Absolutely, but most of the things that have been brought up in the last couple of weeks were already in the process of changing. And yes, sometimes change takes too slow between players and PGA Tour. Right, yep. it just does, but. This it's coming. It's all gonna everything's all everything's gonna be fine, and everybody's <laughs> gonna have enough money to feed their family, right? It's it it's dry. It's it's driven me nuts, and I really hardly ever talk about it. But a, a lot of the guys I'm sure that get interviewed and get asked questions about this stuff that had no interest in doing this is it's I can imagine how annoying it's just it taxing been. it's just draining it, it, it's draining. I and mean, we talk about it every week i wouldn't even really plan on talking about this week until you said you were coming I was like oh i'm gonna have to ask harry about this because <laughs> yeah. he's gonna he's gonna talk about flashing titties and making money off that yeah. but uh did you get fined for that i was no. getting ready to ask it no. are you going to no 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 first Good. phone call was and Maybe it wasn't even for well, I'm not going to do manscaped, that. The manscape call. I just I want to know. I well, want to manscape. You know, may be in the works, right? I, I mean, say, I, this is another thing I can benefit off for sure off of myself. There's already interest there, and there's actually been interest there. Um, you know, for a couple of years with with my counterpart that was also on the hole with me at the time. <laughs> He's um, the best too. So Partner now that I have some really good Joel stories, anyways. But <laughs> um, save those for a later date. Next up, episode 611 with Darren Clark telling one of my favorite Tiger stories ever. So, Tiggy and I have been very good friends for a long, long time. And, you know, we both worked at Butch Harmon um, out in Vegas. And, um, you know, whenever we there, the three of us were out for dinner. Um, it would always be either Butch or myself would pay for dinner because Tiger was cobwebs in his wallet. It's really, I don't know. I don't know. It's a rumor that he has a wallet because nobody's ever really seen it. So we, we would go out and we, we would get on really, really well and have a lot of fun. And he used to call me double F and I used to call him B dash 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 CH or whatever. So he came over to Europe. So when he came over to Europe, he would come walking onto the range. And usually if there was a spot beside me, he would put the bag down. Uh, Stevie would put the bag down and hit balls beside me. He'd say, well, how you doing? FF, um, blah, 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 that sort of stuff. <laughs> so back in the day in Germany, um, it was Deutsche Bank Tournament of the European, what was it called? I can't remember, one of our big tournaments over there, TBC Europe or whatever it was. Tiger was uh, put his bag down and started hitting some balls. Now, back in that those days in Germany, they weren't allowed to use certain pesticides on the, on the ground and what have you. So... Uh, unlike the perfectly manicured courses you have these days, it, it was good, but it wasn't quite what it is today. So because they couldn't use certain pesticides, there was worm casts coming up everywhere, and the turf was a little bit damp, not wasn't wasn't firm, wasn't crisp or anything. And 
Tiggy would, was going through his whole bag, started with his low wage, started with, and then into his nine irons, and then he'd hit a few and turn around and give me a little bit of shit, shit give me a little bit of abuse, go back hitting some more balls and all that sort of stuff. And he flushed every shot. I mean, just pured every shot. Didn't miss one, just pured it. And, um, you know, he finished He's finished off with his driver. Obviously, he teed, the, teed those up, but finished off with his driver and stuff. And about 45 minutes later, he says, okay, okay. Um, FF, I'm away, see you, bye, man, off he, off he wandered. So I looked down at his divot pattern, and all it was was the grass was still green, and it was all brushed. It was, there was no divots, and he pured every shot. Now, some of your listeners might not quite understand that, but that is, to this day, the single most impressive thing that I have ever seen in my career. I will never see it again. Not one divot, not nothing, just absolutely, absolutely pured every shot. I mean, just off the charts. I love that story. At that stage, he was he was obviously number one in the world, and, and by, by long, but he was just incredible. He, he just pured it. I, I I can't get enough of that story. Yeah. It's it. I, I go True back story. and read that golf digest bit like every like, every chance I wow. get. So. It's unreal. He was that good. Well, you got some more good Tiger stories too. But match play in two thousand was that the year you beat him, right? And that uh, you guys had breakfast together that morning. Yeah, we did. You we said did. something to him about his celebrations, if I remember. Oh right. yeah. So <laughs> so I'm sitting here, Tiggy sitting beside me. The other side of Tiger was Butch Harmon. The other side of me was Chubby Chandler. The other side of Butch Harmon was uh, Mark Steinberg. The other side of Chubby was my caddy, Billy Foster. And the other side of Mark Steinberg was Stevie Williams. And we're all having breakfast and, and um, sitting there. And I said to him, I said, now listen, if you chip in today, because a couple of years before, you remember, memorially hold that chip and he started running around like he's pulling the toilet chain all the way around, <laughs> around the grave. I said, if you do that today, I will slap you in the face. To which he, he, his head was down his plate and he lifted his head up and those big white teeth come out and he looked at me. He says, you can F off you FF, you couldn't F and catch me anyway. <laughs> that was the start to our morning. <laughs> oh, gosh. I, I feel like you've got a lot of stories over the years. Yeah, yeah, I have a few. But Tiggy, you know, he's he's always been um, so cool to me and so good to me. When I won the Open in 2011, he was texting me every day because he was out with his leg injury. And uh, our back injury, can't remember which one. And he said, I was watching D- DC. He says, or I was watching FF. Don't be careful over there. Stay away from that bit over there. Go over there. And he was texting me every day and trying to help me every day. Was, that was pretty cool. And you left a note in your locker after that? After the WGC at Lacoste, he left a note on the uh, local rules that week. He says, congrats, be proud. P.S. You're still a FF. <laughs> T.W. T. <laughs> That was not a phase in Tiger's life when he was as uh, friendly towards other players in that regard. This, no, yeah, you know, know it, that was You're that so was a period on. of his time when he was dominating and and doing everything, and everybody seemed to be a little bit more. I don't know. Whenever Tiggy's name got up there, he seemed to have that effect on on people. I didn't really, I didn't care. I just, you know, I'd give him some abuse and try and play and what have you. And I just through my time playing with him and, and practicing with him in Vegas, and obviously got very close to him, and I was. Fortunately, he would help me out any time I asked him for a little bit of advice and a little bit of help. He was he was there for me and, and always offered it. Next up is episode 546 with Jason Hare. He is the director of the Shark documentary that was on ESPN, as well as the director from The Last Dance, talking about interviewing Greg Norman. I give him a lot of credit for going where we wanted to go. I, I think that any pro athlete has a certain sense of ego. And if you said to them, hey, man, we're not going to do a lot about the 96 Masters. We're going to talk about your accomplishments. He probably would have said, 
I'm fine with that. He's, he's Greg Norman. He's, he's worth half a billion dollars and he is Greg Norman walking around for a reason. He's got that aura about him. But because of that, I give him a ter- tremendous amount of credit and respect for, like for instance, we, we had him watch, as you said, that final round in 96. And he didn't know that that was coming. We didn't specifically discuss this. I think that, that his people had, had conveyed to him, they're going to show you some clips and have you discuss them. But we had everything loaded up. It was really, we weren't going to make him watch all 78 shots of, of Sunday in 96, but, but we, we certainly had those loaded up. And I didn't want to lie to him by showing him some of his accomplishments and then dupe him into all of a sudden now return. It was very clear from the very beginning, like the first clip we showed him was Jim Nance's on-air welcome. Hello, friends, in 1996, whatever that was. And it was here we are, and Greg Norman is up by a lot. He's up by six strokes, and this is, you know, it's just a question of is he a 42 long or a 42 regular? I think is what uh, Kenny Main said. So he knew at that moment what was coming, and he could have said, "Guys, I'm not doing this." He could mm-hmm. have stood up and walked out at any moment, or he could have gotten really combative or, or even a little bit defensive, which on TV comes off as a, lo- a lot defensive. I give him a tremendous amount of credit for sitting there and understanding what we were doing and going along with it. And my, my thought always, it wasn't to victimize him and it certainly wasn't to, to, to make fun of him or ridicule him. I always had in the back of my mind, the thought that I think that people, especially in America, in the US, when you screw up, if you own it, people are so willing to forgive you. And whether it's a moral transgression or an athletic transgression or something in between, if you screw up and say, yeah, hey, you know what, hand up, I pushed that thing 40 yards to the right on 18 and I, sh- I shouldn't have done it. And, and it still eats me to this day. So I thought he did. I, I give him credit for, for um, acquitting himself really well of sitting there watching these things. It got a little awkward. I'll be honest. Yeah. <laughs> By the time he went in the water on 12 and he knew what we were doing, I had to skip a couple. Our producer, Matt, had everything queued up. And I think I skipped like he had a bad approach shot on 10 that went wide left and I skipped that because it was like, I could see he and I had his energy was like, wait, are we going to go through? (laughs) (laughs) So, but you had to have the missed three footer on 10 or I'm sorry, on 11, you had to have the water on 12. He birdied 13. He was within two strokes when that famous shot where he drops to his knees on 15 and Mrs. Eagle by, I mean, I don't know how the ball didn't go into the hole to this day. It looks like it rolled over the hole, and, which it may have. If he sinks that, they're tied going into 16. And even I said, too, that if you're down two going into 16, you're still in it. Mm-hmm. Anything can happen. This is Augusta. You birdie 16 and creep within one. You get 17 and 18 to go. The, that. 18th fairway starts looking a lot more narrow if you're up by one, but it was fascinating just to consider what that place can do to an elite athlete, the aura that that place has. And I'll tell you, that is one of the great rewatches too. And it's painful rewatch the whole, but the whole broadcast is up on YouTube. Like all of the masters uh, broadcasts are. And it, it, you, I guess it's kind of Frank Trichini and the CBS crew knew way ahead of, of you know, they knew who the, what the story was. They had to follow one pairing, basically, you know, for the whole day. 
and they just linger on the tension the whole time. They linger, they linger. The fa- even Faldo's shot, and I know that's not what this film's about, but Faldo's shot into 13. He spends three or four minutes deciding on what club to hit, and it's just a, a level of tension. And maybe that's what I, I honestly think like this, this day is what made me. Um, it it not not made me a golf fan, but it upped the level of which I was a golf fan because it was just such incredible theater. And and what I thought uh, a big takeaway I had from from your film as well was this was not um not as much of a freak occurrence as maybe I would have once thought it was. The you did an amazing job of accumulating all of the things that were off from the end of day Saturday all the way through to basically sixteen when he hits in the water and. The fidgeting of the club, the regripping of the club, Faldo talking about that. What is that to watch? It, I mean, I'm not a over a shot. It's a tight lie in the middle of the fairway. We've all stood over that thing and then thought like, oh, there's a couple of people watching me. Imagine if you're on. I think that was the the second or I know it was the eighth for 24 seconds. Yeah, that ball. <laughs> And that's when Faldo even says, and, and and kudos to Faldo for his candor in in this in this doc too, saying I noticed it, and that's when I knew that I could capitalize. I'm not, I'm very much it's well documented. Not a huge uh, fan of Faldo's commentary, but he was fantastic in this document. At docu- I mean, his his perspective on things was such. I guess it came from a I don't want to call it sympathetic place. It was definitely not a a, a taunting thing at all. He just seemed to understand what Greg was going through on that day and. And also he says at the beginning, like he can't believe that Greg would go back there. He says, it's like, why would you yeah. want to go watch a crap movie again? <laughs> I mean, he, he's calling Greg's final round in 96, a crap movie. And he's right. But to see the Faldo that, that we depicted in that doc, which I think is accurate at that point was the super conservative, you know, he was the metronome. He was the guy who's had no personality and was just like, he was always lingering, always there. And then he struck when, 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 when it was time to strike, he would strike, he'd lull you into this. And now today to see the Nick Faldo of today with the sideburns and the butterfly <laughs> collar and the open shirt and the medallion, it's like, he's the dude that people thought that Greg Norman was back then. He's evolved into that. So that, that's a little like subtext that I found fascinating. Next up is episode 514 with Leona McGuire talking about her Solheim Cup experience. I want to talk Solheim Cup. I'm sure you're I'm sure it's a it's a fresh enough memory that you're not uh, you're not you're not tired of talking about it just yet. So you come out, you're a rookie on the team. You play five matches. Was that always the plan? When did you learn or know that you were going to be playing that much? Were they, you know, was uh, was Captain Matthews just riding the hot hand? How did that how did that play out? Yeah, I mean, not in a million years I think I I'd play five matches. I I had a call with Paul McGinley uh, a few days before we, we flew out to, to Toledo just for some advice. And obviously he was a very successful Ryder Cup captain and, and Ryder Cup player himself. So just picked his brains a little bit. And a lot of what we talked about was what to do when I wasn't playing. Those those sessions, if you, if you were dropped in the morning, how do you prepare? How do you get ready? How do you conserve energy? How do you warm up? All that sort of thing. If you're dropped in the afternoon, again, how do you build up that energy, cheer on your teammates, whatever it is that dynamic that we we spent quite a bit of time planning that we didn't plan for five matches that he he basically told me he's like you're a rookie you won't play five matches probably nobody will play five matches if they do it it probably would be a veteran player um so the intention was never for me to play five but i guess someone probably has to i knew i knew there was a few of the girls in the team that had requested afternoons off and, and stuff like that to be be fresh for the singles and I, I mean I was just riding the wave I guess of, of adrenaline and whatever and 
we knew the pairings for those first two uh, that those first two matches the the first day, and then Beanie said that night she told us who was going out in the foursomes, and then said the four ball matches that uh, Sunday afternoon. She was like, "I'll let you know as the as the morning unfolds. I'll try to get to you if I can't assume you're playing, but I'll try to get to everybody that sort of thing." And I personally had assumed I'd probably be dropped for the afternoon. I was thinking, "There's no way I'll play five. I've had a good run. Four's enough." whatever and then uh, Suzanne appeared on I think me and Mel were going down the 12th 13th fairway maybe and we were quite a few up at that stage and she she just turned around and go you two are going again get finish this thing off and, and get ready to go again so and um, that was the realization of okay we're, we're going five here and I actually the first day I'd brought a second pair of shoes to the golf course with me knowing I was going out again that second day I didn't because <laughs> I didn't think I was going to be going in the afternoon again. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, ultimately it's, it's whatever you have to do for the team that, that role changes as, as the week goes on and just glad I was able to, to get my points. Well, th- this answer may be, may be obvious, but what, I mean, what is it about that environment that allowed you to thrive? I mean, I, I've not watched you play a lot of stroke play golf, but the your energy, like the way, how the speed at which you were walking, the fire, and like just the look on your face looks different than what we're used to seeing you play golf. Is that you know just a product of the environment and the, and team golf in general? And am I onto something there? Do you do you when you watch that, do you see a different person? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always loved team golf. I've, I used to love representing Ireland in, in amateur competitions. We used to have the European Team Championships every summer. It was my favorite event, foursomes, singles. I used to play foursomes with my twin sister, Lisa, and had a blast doing that. Loved Curtis Cups, all that sort of thing, Junior Ryder Cups, Junior Solon Cups. And my four years at Duke was, was were team events. Yes, there was a lot of, there was a singles component to it, but my main objective every week was doing as well as I could for the team and I think that's why I played so well in college it was it was never about me it was about the team and I loved every minute of, of Seoul and that that team atmosphere of doing doing your part for the team I was obviously fortunate to have two great partners in in Mel and Georgia who had a, a lot of experience under their belt two very different players and two very different dynamics but I think Mel was great that first morning especially with the draw we got against the quarters um I needed someone with me that wasn't afraid of Nelly and Jess, that respected them but wasn't afraid of them. And I think that that was great for me. I knew I knew she wasn't afraid and I knew she trusted me a hundred percent and I trusted her. And I think that was that was massive sort of in those partnerships, but with Georgia and with Mel. Well, what is it like playing with Mel? She seems like uh, just a, a, you guys seem like you have very contrasting personalities. And I think she even made a comment to that at some point after one, one of the rounds. But how did that pairing come about? And, and what's, what's it like playing with her? Because she's intense. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a pairing, like we said all week. We joked about it all week. Neither of us saw coming when Beanie, Beanie told us on, I think it was on the Wednesday night, we hadn't practice together at that point we'd never we've never played we'd never played together ever in an LPG event in anything <laughs> I had no idea what her game was like and obviously grew up watching her on, on TV and stuff and um yeah Beanie was Beanie was going through the order and she was like oh, Nana and Natilla's gonna lead us off and um I think it was George and Celine which were two great parents to be going out first and second and Celine and, and George had obviously had a phenomenal record at, at Glen Eagles and then I was kind of going through it in my head and I said 
Uh, I'm probably not playing the four stones. That's that's fine. Whatever. I knew Charlie and and then we're coming up and and then she said Mel and I was like, well, I'm, I'm definitely not playing now. And then she said Mel and Leona and I I I think I nearly fell off my chair. I, that was a that was a pairing I never saw coming. But yeah, I think just right off the bat we were we're super honest with each other about what we wanted, what what we thought was was best for the partnership. Um, remember we went out that first morning on on Thursday to to play some foursomes and we got to we went out in the back nine and we got to ten and tenth green and Mel says I want you to read all my pots, all my pots and I was like Mel I've never seen you hit a pot I've I've no idea I've no idea and she's like no you're good at reading pots I want you to read my pots I trust you hundred percent dead weight this is what I want and we just went from there and we had a lot of banter back and forth very different personalities probably but quite similar sense of humor I guess her being English me being Irish that we kind of bounced off each other a bit and both very competitive neither of us wanted to lose and we gelled pretty well and, and bounced off each other quite nicely next up episode 573 with Max Homa a long episode we did with him right after Liv had started up in June a lot of documentation around a lot of expression from him on his thoughts and everything and uh, I thought this was some of the best stuff we had on the podcast all year long episode 573 uh, I think the interesting thing, uh, and and uh, I'm going to use both those points uh, because they, you know, obviously they are. And anybody, you know, with a ton of money can buy kind of anything. That's kind of the world we live in, unfortunately. You know, money kind of just talks. DJ uh, DJ Pihowski, what you said uh, earlier about how you know they need more players out, kind of who are pro tour to be more outspoken. A big reason I've been like this has just been weighing on me and like. I really wanted to get on here to at least talk about it because it, it's been just bugging me is I think the tough part about that is that we don't all get press conferences every week. Like three guys do. Um, I actually was hoping and waiting to get one uh, the last couple of weeks, obviously playing a little bit better, but still not in that like upper, upper echelon. It's like, I still don't get major press conferences and um, I do little interviews here and there, but I haven't really been like saying a ton. I've been saying that I don't love, what's going on. I've obviously been using like social media here and there to joke around about it. It's been kind of tough to help. Like, like if, if, you know, I want the PJ tour to succeed. Um, I I very much enjoy my time out here. It's hard to get your voice heard uh, because I'm not going to waste some like deep thought on like a small article to like the local newspaper, which is more of what (laughs) I mean, honestly, I do. And uh, you, you know, you want to, you want to be like a Rory if, if you're, if you're aligned, uh, you know, in thought with him, but we don't get the opportunity. I feel really bad for Rory. He should not have to do this week in and week out. He's doing an amazing job. It scares me in a way because um, you know, it's all the big Batman fans out there like me, like he's kind of our Harvey Dent right now and he shouldn't have to keep sticking his neck out. If like anything ever came out, like he, no one's perfect, you know, and it's tough for him to keep having to say this over and over and over again. And keep like, I mean, I'm sure he's friends with Brooks. Like they live down by each other. They're both elite golfers. They've been around each other a lot. Like he shouldn't have to talk shit about him. And like, they're kind of pushing him to say something bad about him. And that's not his job. Um, I think we could all help, but the problem is we're not all in a position uh, to do so. But like the things I, I would say and why I've been wanting to have, like or at least be able to have my voice heard a little bit is I, I look back and I know it probably gets, I, I, it gets over talk about, by me probably and about me but when I had the shitty like go of golf I can like pinpoint my rock bottom at least the one that like I I pictured the the clearest and I can remember sitting in this shithole hotel 
at an Adams tour event in the middle of Brownville, Texas, which ironically was Sam Burns's first ever professional golf tournament, which was kind of cool. But I remember sitting in there and like, I barely was watching TV. I was like sitting on my bed and just like thinking about what's going on. I remember being in a, my first round and, uh, you know, everybody out there, it's an Adam's Tour event. It's an awesome, great run tournament. But most of those guys are either getting ready for Q score or just trying to make a few bucks. And somebody, I, you know, I was talking to somebody, he said he was, uh, worked in the uh, car barn at some course down the road. And he asked me what I did. And I literally was like two weeks ago, I was playing on the PJ tour. Like I, I, this is, you know, and it was like a humbling feeling and it was, it was, it sucked. So I remember I bring that up because when I was sitting in that hotel room thinking and like, just like reminiscing and, and, and then dreaming, I dreamed about a lot of things, dreamed about, you know, playing on the PJ tour. I dreamed about competing, uh, contending, battling Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, like playing with Tiger Woods. Like I, I, I dreamed of a lot of that. Uh, I dreamt of like climbing up the world ranking. I, I dreamt of winning the FedEx cup. I dreamt of president's cups and Ryder cups. And I know money comes with a lot of that, but I never dreamt of money. And I, and I mean that sincerely, like I, I, that was never like the motivating factor. Uh, and I think that is a big part of this whole thing. You can buy a tour for sure, but you can't buy like my goals and my dreams and I think a lot of guys do have that. And I think that is the power of these top guys right now. And I hope it stays just selfishly for myself. Uh, the funny part is, is if all this goes to shit and the live tour works and all that, like I make a lot more money. <laughs> like uh, the, that's the, that's the, like in my current set, like mindset, that's like the downside. Um, but I love, like, I, I love playing the tournament at Riviera, the Genesis. I love playing uh, API presented by MasterCard at, uh, at Bay Hill. Like I love those tournaments. They mean a lot to me. I enjoyed watching them growing up. I enjoy playing in them now. Like, I don't know. I, that's why I want the, the tour to succeed mostly is just because I, I really enjoy a lot of that. Um, and for me, I, and I don't think I'm alone. Like, I think a lot of these guys, like th there's this argument now that it's playing for money or playing for trophies. And I, I call bullshit because we play for a lot of fucking money. Uh, also, so I don't know. I, I think that there are going to be guys go. It's 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 boatloads of cash, like boatloads, unthinkable cash. But I do think that like for the last year and a half, I mean, last year I, I you know thought I had a chance to make the Ryder Cup, got fit for the clothes. I can picture myself in those clothes, looking in the mirror, knowing I was not going to make that team at that point because I was playing too shitty, and saying, "All right, I'm gonna be on this Presidents Cup team." And I, I just don't know if there's an amount of money at this moment that would this week get me to quit golf or quit the PJ tour. So I could go and I would not get to play the president's cup. Like that's what wakes me up in the morning. That's why I practice when it's 110 out here in Arizona. Like that is what gets me. And I don't think that I'm alone there. And I think that is the beauty of professional golf. Um, and, and for a lot of the guys on tour, I think that they're aligned in that. Next up episode 548 with Sahith Tagala talking about waste management and his uh, development on the PGA tour. I feel like I'm watching somebody that is along for the ride, right? You wear your emotions on your sleeve, the way you played it, it, you know, you got out to the lead at waste management and like, it felt like that Saturday was the most exhausting round of golf possible. You were in the desert the whole day. Oh my it's God. Loud, like, I, I, I don't know if you wear a whoop, like what was your whoop straight at the end of that yeah. day? If there were, it... <laughs> yeah. So I, I wear a whoop and I've always, I always get really nervous tournament rounds. doesn't matter what tournament doesn't matter what day my heart rate just gets pumping. So like a normal round of 18 holes of golf for me, like is between 12 and 13 string, like pretty normal. 
And it seems like a lot of golfers are pretty similar, if not even more, 14 for a casual round of golf. But tournament golf for me is usually between 16 and 18. And my heart rate is just so jacked up. It's like my heart rate's like averaging 120, 125. Wild. But Saturday at Waste Management, 20.7 strain. With hitting, <laughs> with hitting the normal amount of balls I do, didn't do any extra practice, no extra workout, nothing like that. 20.7, and then Sunday was 20.5. I mean, it was absurd how it was the most two of the most stressful rounds of golf uh, I've played. Going back, so the, the waste management was not your first time in contention for uh, you know not not as many people are watching golf I know in the fall, but you had a you were in great position at the Sanderson uh, on the back nine. It looked like your tournament to lose. What what did you learn from that situation? What was that disappointment like? And did it feel different being in contention of a tour event versus other golf you've played? So like leading up into that, it was pretty wild. Like the, the year before I got, I was lucky enough to get five starts on tour plus uh, qualified for the US Open and then some starts on Corn Ferry. I actually Monday qualified into three of them, but it was like the best golf I've played. And, and I felt like I was playing my best golf throughout that whole year. And I was like finishing like 30th, like a couple top 25s on Corn Ferry. Had a good finish at Memorial, came in like 30th, but like, you know, nothing great. Like anyone looking at it is like, oh, he's just playing, you know, whatever average golf. But for me, it was like, wow, I'm playing really well. And then it all clicked Corn Ferry Finals. Um, those two weeks, those last two weeks of Corn Ferry Finals, it was probably the best two events I've ever played in my life. Um, and I came in fourth and sixth there. And I, as far as I even still looking back at it, those are the best two, four rounds of golf I've played in my life, I think, considering the situation all that. So the first couple events of the fall series, I was just keeping that momentum from those Corn Ferry finals. And I was just striping. It was the best I ever hit the ball at Napa and, and Sanderson. And similar to Waste, like, I don't even know what happened. I, I shot eight under the first day at Sanderson. It's like, whoa, I'm leading in the PGA Tour event. This is sick. And uh, it's it just, yeah, it just, I literally played, in my opinion, flawless golf for 63 holes at Sanderson. And I don't know what it was, but walking, I made a great par save on nine, the final round on Sunday at Sanderson. And I don't know what it was. Maybe I just didn't take a, you know, just take an extra moment to kind of refocus and, and let myself just keep playing golf. I, I, I felt my myself getting a little bit nervous and obviously seeing a leaderboard behind nine, I had the lead on a back nine on a Sunday on tour where six weeks ago I had zero status. I don't know. I just hit two five yard pushes with seven irons back to back and hit it in the green sub bunker on 10 and hit it on the bank of the water on 11 and kicked in. And all of a sudden I'm three back and it's like, man, that happened quick. But, you know, looking back on that, it, it was a great week and I got paired with, uh, Cam Tringali on Sunday, which made it really great. He and his caddy, or my caddy, was staying with Cam's caddy. And he he also caddied for Cam for four years, I think. But we had dinner every night, and it was, it was pretty cool that we got paired up on Sunday. But looking back on it, I, I was like, I was so close, even with, like, ridiculous mistakes on the back on Sunday. I mean, I, other than those two holes I bogeyed, I think I had one bogey before that the tournament I bogeyed those two holes and then I three putted from like 12 feet on 13 
And at that point, I didn't think much of it. I'm like, oh, I've already lost my opportunity to win. Like, whatever. Like, just try and run the tables coming in. But then I realized, like, how big of a difference it is from finishing. I finished eighth versus finishing third or fourth if I was a shot better. And I don't know, just, just the whole experience. Like, I, I learned that, obviously, you're not in that many positions to win at the highest level. And when you're in a position, like, got to go for the win when I felt like I did go for the win there um but also learning that you know I can't just be throwing away shots like it I missed like a three-footer on 11 because I was pissed I didn't chip it in for birdie and and just stuff like that but yeah looking back at it it was like it was a little bit of both because I was like I played so well that I don't know it, it's not like a sustainable thing to to hit it that well and and stuff like that but at the same time it's like dude I, I, this was my second pga tour event ever as a rookie with my card and i was leading after 54 holes i was leading every step of the way and that gave me so much confidence going forward and the, the second time obviously at waste i felt way way better prepared for the for sunday and i think it showed like i i didn't i honestly played way better at sanderson versus i did at waste which was which is also pretty cool to look back and reflect on but I was just able to manage it so much better at waste. Like I, I honestly didn't get everything out of, out of my game at Sanderson and I still had the lead. So, you know, what's funny is like, I, I still haven't watched the coverage from, uh, from the final round at Sanderson. I haven't watched any shots, but yeah, I, I, I just, I reflected on it, but I, I really didn't want to dwell on it too much because, cause it hurt. Like I was getting so many congratulatory messages and I was like very thankful, obviously, but and I, I was hurting that whole plane ride Sunday night to Vegas and honestly maybe let it affect me a little bit in Vegas too. And I, I missed the cut there, but it was definitely a bag of mixed emotions. I, Cause I'm such a, I'm like a closet competitive guy. I don't really show my competitiveness per se, but very competitive guy. And it, it, it hurt for a while and it still hurts to talk about now. So it's seven months after. Next up, episode 594 with Keith Mitchell, another one of the highlights of the year, I would say. This was immediate reaction after the PGA Tour made a bunch of changes. We had a long, long podcast talking about all those, but I uh, highly recommend going back to that one if you have not listened to that one. Episode 594 with Keith Mitchell. I think Roy said it so well in his press conference that Phil wasn't necessarily wrong. He just did it the wrong way. And what does that mean? It means that if Phil had all these concerns... Why don't him and Tiger get in a room and then him and Tiger invite Rory and, you know, at the time, you know, all these guys and say like, hey, guys, this this feels like we need to maybe do something about this and let's work together to get this done. What's so wrong about that? Right. I, and, you know, I've looked up to Phil for a long time and he's been great to me. And, you know, he's obviously had, you know, a lot of controversy, but. You know, he. I don't want to say he was right. I don't want to say he was wrong. <laughs> Nobody wants to say he was right. I, I, I want to say that imagine if we, you know, there's a lot of top players over there. Again, why are the majors the best? It's because they're all there. Well, if all those players came together and did it together on the PGA Tour and the majors, why, I mean, what? why is that, why is that model bad? Right. And that's what, what frustrates me a little bit is if it wasn't for Liv, this wouldn't happen. I, that's not necessarily true. It's more of like, hey, the tour had the ability to do this. 
The tour is clearly listening to the players. And I, you know, I'm speculating in the past, but if all the players had these concerns and all these things were possible, imagine if they all got together in a room and then went to Jay and took it to him and there are the owners of the tour and Jay says no or the tour says no, then then you have a problem. Correct. And I don't think that would have happened. Right. I really don't. Like if and and people and again, this is all speculative. So people say, well, it wouldn't have, should have, you know, this yeah. whatever. But if they were all aligned, and they all when we all we they we are all aligned, and we have a proposal, and it is for the better of the tour, then there's no reason tour wouldn't do it. That's what that's what's mind blowing to me is that people actually think the tour is saying no. We want to screw you yeah like that that's like honestly like the argument that they're saying and i'm like no that i just don't i just can't possibly believe that because if they do that then they're the ones that are screwed right next up episode 544 with bob herrick talking about phil mickelson it does surprise me not not from the standpoint of Phil's always sort of had this reputation as being you know he's the smartest guy and he's got all the answers and and, you know, he knows this and he knows that. And he's been outspoken about things, but it never really was to the point where it hurt him that much, certainly not publicly. You know, he was viewed as an outgoing guy, signed autographs, smiled, did interviews, was on t- came off well on TV. I think where, where the whole thing surprises me is, is where did this, this quest for chasing, you know, this big money, come from exactly i mean it couldn't have all been about i want to make change for the pga tour while a, a lot of that is true phil has long thought that there are things wrong at the tour and he has long had issues with transparency and some of the things that they do so he actually has some points in this whole thing it's just that the way he went about it has hurt him greatly because it's overshadowed the things that he's right about when he talked about the media rights, that was very, very uh, poor path to go down because it's just not true. You know, it's not true. It, it, no sports league gives players their media rights. It's the whole essence behind how they pay the salaries or how in golf the purses are what they are. It's pretty basic. And as far as, you know, well, then using this new league as leverage. Well, like, were you that concerned about your, your peers coming up for the next 10 years that you wanted to make this better for them? Or was it about you? And remember, we're talking less than a year ago, the guy pulls off one of the most incredible feats. And frankly, it's probably been underplayed. Yeah. Oh, he yeah. won a major at 50. It had been 53 years since Julius Boros became the oldest major champion at 48. We'd had guys flirt with it, obviously, Tom Watson, Kenny Perry. But nobody had done it at that age. He beats Kepka, you know, who's going for his fifth major. Louis Oosthuizen is obviously still in the prime of his career uh, on, a, on a kind of a U.S. Open playing course that he had never been able to master. And now he does. You know, he wanted, I think the title score was 600. I mean, it was an accomplishment that should have carried him for years. Clearly, his endorsement deals were going to go up. If he wanted to do TV, he could have done it and made a lot of money. He could have. He could have made chump change, easy money on the champions tour. The few, few times he went out there and look, he was exempt. He still is exempt on the PGA tour for years. Uh, you know, us open for five years and obviously the other majors he's in. So 
it's just odd that this became a, you know, a, a quest and that he became the leader in it and how much it's damaged his reputation now. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, I find it a shame because I, you know, I, I don't want to make a judgment about what's right or wrong. I just, he's a very popular player who we should be embracing now. And unfortunately we're not. Next up, one of the first ones we did all year long, episode 510 with Tommy Fleetwood. Yeah, we, we had this thing this year where it was, um, uh, we all got given our number. So I'm trying to remember correctly. It might have been 164, might have been the most recent, like the, uh, which was burnt, which uh, was the, he's the, you know, the most recent guy to get in the team. We had three, did we have three rookies this year? Uh, yes. Shane, Victor and burnt. Um, so we had this, um, it was, it, you know, it was an amazingly cool video of um, what your, you know, what your number is, um, get given your number, what the number means, uh, make it count was our slogan. And then, you know, after, you know, after that video, you get, you know, the talk from Padraig, who was an, an amazing speaker throughout the week. And then he announced, you know, the, the rookies who've just got given their, they've just got given their number. And it was, it was really cool. Cause again, you just get welcomed into the team. And again, like the, on both sides, rookies these days just don't feel like rookies because you all play the same events and such big events and you've had such big moments in the biggest tournaments. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's honestly a very, very special thing. And you just have to see the guys that played their first one this year, how much they loved it. And I was a rookie three years ago and I remember how much I loved being in the team. And then you watch those guys and how just into it you are and how much you kind of just feel like everybody's been in the team for like 20 years. Um, it's it's an amazing like vibe and that, but it was very cool. And everybody's so behind and you see the guys' faces, how much it means to everyone just to be, um, you know, play for Europe and re- and represent and, and wear the clothes and everything and get your number. So that was that was really cool and just so well done by, you know, everybody that was behind that. That's where I think I'm getting closer and closer and closer to understanding, you know, this, this, how this team atmosphere on Europe has led to so much success. You know, it's, it's little stories like that, that, you know, take it from being this kind of rosy, you know, media presented thing to like hearing the detailed stories behind the scenes of the things that unfold. It's like, ah, well, that makes sense why you see like so much emotion and how that, you know, the team, yeah, it's amazing, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah. it's a whole culture thing that, you know, I think, I guess that's a better question. How, how does that lead to how does the team atmosphere potentially lead to either better or worse golf in in either way on either side of the coin and you know in in theory like how would how does that actually lead to better golf shots more putts hold does it lead to that in any way i don't i don't know i i i feel like i mean you know i've played both good and not so good now in 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 two rider cups i think there's there's definitely that there's a aura and an atmosphere created in our team and i obviously can only speak for team europe that's all i can ever speak for because that's all i experience but you just feel so you feel very safe um and when you have people leading the team like we do like i say i go back to Pulse and sergio they speak amazingly and anybody that is even the slightest bit down um about a result one of those is picking you up straight away uh, rory is another one like such positive people and amazing teammates and team leaders that you you don't get a chance to sit there and feel down uh, or feel sorry for yourself they pick you up so quickly 
and you go out there and again you're always playing you're not playing for yourself you're playing for each other and yeah things happen in the Ryder Cup don't they I mean they happen on both sides as well there's always amazing goal shots hit there's always amazing moments like I, I don't I don't know how it translates into into the golf side of things but yeah it's it's clearly a very special event and Europe do you know we we obviously do have a great record in you know in recent history if you like but it seems to be you know swapping over now home rider cups seem to have been very very important um in the last few um and we'll see where you know we'll see where it goes in the future but it is an amazing time and and yeah Europe especially this one like this was such a great set of teammates for Europe. And I, th- I, th- I think if a few guys said like the atmosphere and the unison that we all had together was like as good as they've ever experienced. And um, again, like I, I think it's, it's such a natural thing for us. It's not like we work on it, the, the, the back, the backroom staff and the, and what goes into it um, and how they produce those videos or, and how they set the team room out is unbelievable and clearly, you know, makes, I think that makes a massive difference. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know, like just uh, the Ryder Cup's cool event and, um, you know, some people are just made for that. Next up, one of my sneaky favorites of the year, episode 550 with JJ Reddick, an absolute golf nut, as we talked about uh, his transition into the golf world. Well, what has been your golf journey? You know, for the listeners that aren't familiar with your current obsession, which we are going to dive very deep into, but how did it get to this point? Yeah, so the, so the background is I, I I didn't play any golf growing up. I didn't swing a golf club through high school, through college. I came back to Roanoke maybe my first or second year to run a basketball camp at my high school, and I went and played a round, and obviously you know, I, I didn't keep score because I couldn't score. Uh, and when I got back to Orlando, my brother came and lived with me, and he had gotten into golf, and we lived in a golf course community. And I met this guy, Brian Thompson. He, you know, at the time, he was, a, he was a chubby guy, very unfit, non-athlete. And I would go play golf with this guy, and he would hit 330-yard baby draw bombs. And I was like, how is this possible? Like, I'm the athlete. And so I, I played with Brian for a couple years there. Uh, probably my second, third in the NBA. We, you know, we would play again. I wasn't scoring. I didn't take any lessons. I had a, a set of clubs, and I'd play with them. You know, probably probably played like thirty rounds. When I started dating my wife. I moved out of that community. I didn't play again till 2013. So probably had like a five year gap from playing. Moved to Austin in the off season, and got into it a little bit there, um, but didn't have like I. I tried to join Austin Country Club, and the wait list was three years. Didn't get my fucking membership till I moved, <laughs> till I could get the non-resident membership. And it's funny, I got that in 2016 when we moved, and I still have yet to play around there as a member. No which, way. Uh, yeah, I'm still a member. I'm, st- I'm not. I'm not giving that up. This is where the the Dell Match Play is held. The World Golf Championship Match Play is held. Then in 15, my son was one years old. My wife gets uh, pregnant with our second son, and I just stopped playing. And from 15 until the bubble in 2020, I didn't play any golf. I still had the same set of clubs. I took them down to the bubble because I knew I was going to be bored. I didn't want to be in a hotel room all the time. I played three rounds in the bubble. I got back that fall, played a couple rounds in the New York area, got some invites, like awesome invites, Sabonic, The Bridge, uh, Hudson National. And 
I knew going into my into the 2020-2021 season, I knew it was going to be my last year and I was like I think I think golf should be my thing. Like I need some sort of competitive outlet. There's also the there's the the simple process of trying to master something that has always really interested me and I got a, you know, fitted for clubs. I got back to New York in June, took my first lesson at the end of June and uh, you know, played 50 rounds that summer like I was I was literally my wife wanted to kill me I she wanted to kill me and I uh, I've taken some more lessons since then um, and yeah I mean every every trip if I leave the New York area you know it's just like what what golf course can I play I was down in Atlanta as I was down in Atlanta as I said for game three and I when I got the call earlier in the week I was kind of like a fill-in for somebody because I wasn't contractually obligated to do games this year and they're like, do you want to do the Hawks game on Friday? I was like, absolutely. Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. So I texted some people like, who do you know at Peachtree? I knew it. <laughs> you know? I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I played Peachtree first thing in the morning and then got back to the hotel uh, and went to the game. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a like like you guys, you know, it is such it is such an addicting sport. And I've gotten completely bit. Yeah, I'm obsessed. What is it, though? What is it about golf, you know, and is it is it weird to kind of go from a sport that, you know, you've – as close to really mastering as you can get, you played at the highest possible level to something that you're, from what I gather, average at but improving? I kind of take us to <laughs> yeah. what, what your game is like and what your uh, – what you get out of trying to, you know, improve at this game. Um, so a few I've things heard your, your quotes on it are, like, exactly why I love golf. Like, talking about that, that flush shot. Yeah, there's a there's a few things on it. So n- number one, it, it's for me, it's competitive, um, and and it's probably in terms of a competitive scale, it's it, to me, it's like as competitive as any sport because you're competing against yourself, you're competing against the course, you're competing against the weather that day. I love to play matches. I love to gamble on the course, and I so you're you're competing for money. You're competing to beat whoever. I had a Duke lacrosse player that um, we were tight in college. We reconnected on Long Island out east two years ago, and we played like six matches together. We were six and zero last summer. Like it's just that competitive part is a huge part of it. Uh, as I mentioned, the the task of trying to get better at something. Um, it's why I love basketball so much. Is that I, I I could sort of have these measuring sticks of of feeling like I was getting better at something, and golf reflects that as well as anything. And then the third component, and, and I'm not trying to sort of like hyperbolize this, but golf really is a spiritual experience to me. There is something about being outside, being in nature. There's this idea that like we all have something in our lives where we feel closest to God. And for me, it's always been nature. And so I spent most of my fucking life in hotel rooms, gymnasiums, buses, <laughs> airplanes, waiting around to go play a sport indoors. So there's something that's very amazing about just being outside and walking around for four and a half hours and, and you know, having 90 swings. <laughs> Last break here to check in with our friends at No Laying Up. That's right, a house ad for The Nest. If you do not know what The Nest is, it is our kind of our Patreon of sorts. It's like our our membership platform. We always have, I always struggle to describe it. I'm probably not the right guy to do this ad read, but if you go to nolayingup.com slash join, you will find a way to support the show if you are interested in doing so. It is not a requirement, but if you do want to support it, it costs $90 a year and you get full access to No Laying Up's Refuge message board. It gets you early access to sign up for our events. It gets you a discount on merchandise, it gets you special Nest merchandise. It gives you a member directory so you can see who else has members in the Nest 
podcast and help you grow your network as well as you have a chance to qualify for the Nest Invitational Tournament at the end of the year. And of course, if you get signed up before the end of the year, you are eligible and you will receive the annual gift from the Merch Czar himself. He keeps it very tight and close to the chest as to what that's going to be, but get signed up before the end of the year and you will get a gift sent out to you into the new year. Again, nolangup.com slash join, nolangup.com slash join. Let's get back to the highlights. Next up, episode 520. This is Chad Mum, the producer of the Netflix series that we're going to see next February, talking about uh, what was going to unfold. Did it take much convincing at, you know, either the PGA Tour level or honestly, I wouldn't, he wasn't in my realm of even possibility that we'd be seeing Augusta National, the old core, all the, all the majors involved in this. Cause it's not a, that means it's not a PGA Tour show. It is a story about a year in professional golf. So how, what was the convincing process like for that? I mean, what do, do you get the sense that, you know, having this blueprint, like the drive to survive to put in front of somebody helps you get in the door and move those conversations along? No question that was extremely helpful. Um, you know, I think the history of the show, you know, it came about three years ago um, in January in 2019. Uh, and I had a meeting with some of the tour execs, actually was at a golf course, which was fitting. And we talked about this idea and I'd see them every year and sort of pitch them on doing something like this. And at the time, our comp was like hard knocks, you know, some really authentic, real storytelling and just kept saying like how important it was for the NFL to like let people see that like relatively unfiltered and that, that golf, you know, probably more than any other sport, like could benefit from that kind of, especially as this new class of player came in and, you know, Tiger, we weren't sure if he was going to play again, obviously, you know, we know what happened in 2019, but they, it was just always like never the right time. And then when Jay became commissioner kind of heard that like, maybe there were, you know, things were changing over there a little bit. They were going to open up the doors a little bit. So uh, we played golf and for the first tee time off, I, brought it up on the first tee and said, maybe it's time to do it. And by the time we finished 18 holes, we had sketched out like what would basically become where we are now, which was what would it take to give us the ability to tell the story in a real way without that editorial control to get the kind of trust from the tour to just like be able to like let someone else do that and how, why, how important that was to do it that way and, and what it meant. Um, and so it started with that. And, and I mean, honestly, to the credit, the tour, like they, within like two months they were in like fully in like we were ready to go and then and then we had to get players because obviously they can't make players do anything so i went to the masters in 2019 great masters to go to Jeez, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't there sunday but i did like cry watching it at home with my like then three-year-old daughter uh and i still cry when i watch the replay on youtube you know we just i sat under the tree like basically and would like i had a list of agents and i had pictures of them and I would just go up to people and be like, I think that you're, you know, Jay Dancy or uh, Lance Young or, you know, Sam McNaughton. And, and, you know, we started having these conversations. The tour was great at just sort of making intros, but like they weren't involved in the player conversation. They were not guiding those. They were not saying to players, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. They just, they, they, they got out of the way and let us build those relationships. And, and from the beginning, you know, did not insert themselves in that process really in any way. And so, and this was like very early on, we hadn't set it up at Netflix yet. It was just building that consensus. Um, so Ricky, we had a great meeting with, you know, Sam and, and Ricky's team at Wasserman and, and Ricky was the first player on board. And then quickly after that, Justin Thomas uh, came aboard and, and then Cameron Champ and Tony Finau. So that was kind of our core crew. And then, you know, we started putting all of it together and, and then COVID happened. So, you know, it didn't make sense to like launch the show then. Um, and we still were, so we kind of held off on pitching it wide and then, 
and then, you know, this year, last year, I guess, came around and we took it to Netflix and Drive to Survive was doing really well. And, you know, I hadn't met Paul and James yet, but, you know, Netflix really started to take interest and it started to move along a lot faster at Netflix. And I give uh, one of the execs there, uh, Dan Stefano, a lot of credit for really being the champion internally. He's a huge golf fan. He, uh, you know, and, and all of a sudden that started picking up the pace. And, and so, you know, for Netflix, it's like, we're going to do this. Like, we're going to do the ultimate version. So, um, so they said, look, if you can get, you know, the majors to sign up, sign up, then, you know, I think we're, this is going to happen. So then we did <laughs> like, and honestly, it was, it was surreal to like be on a zoom call with like people from Augusta national. That was just like crazy. <laughs> and it was like, I, you know, I'm like, Oh my God, they're from Augusta national and we're talking on zoom and I'm like in LA and here we go. But to their credit, like we met individually with all the majors and the, and the you know, the folks from all the majors and, Augusta was like the first to say yes. They got it like right out of the gate and said like, yeah, we get it. We understand it. You know, they had, they had already met like box to box and Paul and, and Paul had, and James had come aboard at that point. You know, once we had started to get more serious at Netflix, that started to pick up steam. We, we had a meeting and, and, and joined forces on it. And then, you know, and once Augusta said like, hey, we're, we're in for this, the ball started rolling a lot faster. And, you know, but all of them were. I mean, there was no holdout. I mean, the I give a lot of credit to PGA of America, to USGA, to the RNA. Like nobody had to be convinced that this was a good idea for the game. And I mean, honestly, like I, I know it's like the cynical, like I look, I get it, but it's like the tour was willing to like make it not a tour thing. And they saw that too. And they, I think that said a lot, kind of spoke volumes without us even having to pitch it. That like, no, 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 this is golf. Like this is a year in golf and we're going to do what's best for the show not necessarily what's best for the tour because we know that in success, if you do it right and tell the right kind of story, it's going to be great for everybody. And so, and so they got that like from, from the jump. And so, yeah. And so once, the, and then obviously the majors came on board and, you know, we just, we got so lucky with the draw being like St. Andrews for, for the Open championship and, you know, Colin and the cast, like as a defending champ, champion golfer of the year. And it's like sort of surreal even thinking about, it. and then even just like, you know, country club at Brookline, like the Francis Wimet story. I mean, there's so much that people don't know that story, you know, and it's like one of the best sports stories of all time. And Southern Hills is going to be epic. Like they just, you know, the redesign makes that course is going to be a beast and, yeah, we got a great year ahead of us. So, so yeah, anyway, so once the majors came on board, you know, that thing picked up the pace and, and, you know, here we are like a few months later, like on site, you know, with the cameras out, we got the movie cameras out here at Torrey Pines. Next up, Alan Shipnuck, episode 553, talking about his book on Phil and some fantastic Phil stories. I went to Phil face to face three times throughout this whole process and asked him if he would sit down for interviews for the book. And he molded over and eventually he said no. And that, you know, that's fine. That's his prerogative. He was really obsessed with this idea. He didn't want it to be an authorized biography and authorized versus unauthorized is, is a nuanced thing as well, because, you know, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, they always sat with their biographers. You know, they, they saw the value in telling their side of every story and putting their spin on everything. And there's also a human element. You know, you, if you're, if you're the, if you're the, the athlete and you give the writer your time, then, you might be able to soften them up in some way. And so they understood that, um, you know, Tiger's taking the opposite approach. He just slams the shutters down and, and as many books as it have been written about him, he's never participated. And I think Phil was going back and forth on how he wanted to play it. He, he ultimately said, no, and that was fine. I've, I've had so much access to Phil through the years and the people around him. I had a ton of material. It would have been great to sit down and have a bunch of long interviews with him because he's a great storyteller and he's, 
he's a, it's like a high wire act when you're really interviewing Phil because he's just all over the place. But but also um, if you are participating and it gives off the you know the idea that it is an authorized version of it, then it makes it look like anything else you write in there is also signed off on him. Is that or by him? Is that is that a, something they weigh as well? Yeah, it, it's complex. And then then you have like an official auto, autobiography where. It's, it's a business partnership and the writer and the subject share in the proceeds and they have editorial control. Like that was never going to happen, right. but that was Phil's stance. And, you know, we talked at the, the PGA at Harding Park. We talked to Torrey Pines, talked to Pebble Beach. This was over a matter of, you know, six months when, when I approached him and he turned me down. So that was fine. I, I just plunged into writing the book and, you know, fast forward 10 months, it's, it's Thanksgiving of 21 and you know, the book is actually due December 1st. I'm like, I'm in the home stretch. And Phil texts me and says, can we talk? I was like, yeah, great. Of course. And I'm stoked. And he calls me up and he just, he starts going. I mean, this guy was already, he went zero to 60 in about one sentence. And, you know, his lawyer had previously reached out to me. And this is a whole other weird part of the book where the lawyer wanted to hire me as a consultant as Phil was gearing up to take on the tour for his media rights which of course I said no instantly because that's a massive conflict of interest. Yeah. I can't take Phil's money while I'm writing about Phil. Like they'd even make that offer was utterly bizarre. But so I knew that the, I knew that this was the background. He wanted to talk about meteorites and which sounded really boring. You know, I would have preferred to talk to him about Wingfoot, but you take what you can get in this scenario. And so to your question, like on or off the record, I mean, when someone wants to go off the record, they have to say it. And I have to consent to it. I mean, it, it is a, you know, it's an agreement. And in the context of this book, everyone wanted to tell me everything, both Phil's fans and his, his supporters and his detractors. And I had so many ornate agreements with different people about what could be used, how it could be sourced. You know, someone that Phil's has a gambling history with told me something that was so explosive and would have been international headlines but it was off the record and I couldn't use it because I always honor those agreements. And, and you know this from your own life, like Chris, like it can be a dance, right? Like if, if you're at the driving range and a pro walks by who your buddies with and you're just bullshitting and they say, hey man, did you hear that you know, player X got in a fist fight with his caddy? You're like, oh damn, really? You're not really conducting an official interview. And so can you use that or not? I mean, it becomes a gray area. And in that scenario, you might say, oh, hey, I'd love to talk about that, write about that. Can can I use that? And they'll say, yeah, but don't use my name or, okay, but let me, they'll clean it up a little bit and give you something a little more official. And, and that, that kind of thing happens all the time in sports writing. It's very contextual, right? Like you're not, it's not, it's not an official interview. You're just hanging out. And if you blow that, you've lost that contact probably forever, right? You know, they're yeah. not going to share any information with you off, you know, right. even if it's, if they, even if they don't say off the record, there's a pl plenty of guys that will come up and say, you have this as well, will say something and you just like inherently know I, I, that's not to use. And I think what you're getting ready to say is in the context of writing this book and you asking him multiple times for an interview and he calls you up to talk, that is a very different scenario. A very different scenario. I mean, I've, I've been begging him to speak to me for this book over and over. I've talked to everyone in his orbit. You know, his, I reached out to his high school girlfriend. I've gotten his college teammates, his family, swing coaches. Like Phil knows I'm writing this book. He's nervous about it. His lawyer is trying to co-opt me. Like this book is happening and there's an Amazon listing for it. You know, like, and when we get on the phone, he asks me when the book's coming out. Like this is, 
we are talking because of this book and only because of this book. And every single thing he says is going straight into the book unless we agree otherwise and we hash it out. And he never said anything to that effect. And, you know, I guess if you want to second guess anything in this whole process, like I could have said, gee, Phil, are, are you sure you want to say that? But I don't really feel like, you know, it's my responsibility to provide guardrails for Phil. He called me. You know, he wanted to tell me this stuff. He's done and, this for how many years? Like he has, yeah. this is not a rookie in doing media, right? Exactly. I didn't surprise him in the men's room. You know, he called me. And the other thing to understand about Phil is he never opens his mouth without an agenda. He is a very smooth operator. And I go into great detail in the book about the ways that he's he's charmed the media and he's bullied them and he's manipulated them and he's wooed them. And, you know, Phil is very cagey. And so... The idea that that he was surprised by any of this is nonsensical. So you asked, what, what do I think his motivations were? Well, there's a few. I mean, when he inquired when the book was coming out, I said, you know, May 17th, Tuesday, the PGA Championship week. And at that point, you know, in his mind, the Saudi stuff is going to be done and dusted. You know, it's already been announced. We know the, the first tournament was on the horizon. Like decisions were going to be made. And so I believe that this was his way of for posterity, recording his thoughts and his beliefs about the whole situation. That yes, I know the Saudis are bad guys. Yes, I know they, they, they commit these atrocities, but this is just business. And at the same time, he's working both sides of the street. So if he goes to, if he goes to Saudi Arabia, the tour, then and fans are outraged, he's kind of wing at them saying, I know, I get it, I get it, guys, but it's okay. Like this is just business. And if he if it, that blows up and he winds up going back to the PJ tour and pledging his fealty, which could have looked like a political defeat for him. He's told me about all his, his battles with Jay Monahan and all the concessions he's extracted and all his little victories. And so he's kind of covered either way. I love the part in the book when Phil goes to the, the minor league tryout with oh the Toledo mud hens. And I, I kind of watched that from afar as it was playing out. And I was kind of confused about the whole thing and it came and went real fast and it just seemed like a head scratcher i had no idea how serious phil was and he had hired tom house you know this renowned major league baseball pitching coach to to be his tutor and all that went into it and it was just fun to peel back the layers and, and then call up some of the ball players who were there at the time and you know all these things like how fast was his fastball yeah, well, it wasn't very fast. So was, he topped out at 68, which is absurd to think that he was going to get a one-day call-up with the Tigers, which was his goal. But, you know, what Tom House told me is that Phil was throwing 100 pitches a day in this, this mound he'd built in his backyard. And, and House was like, no Major League Baseball pitcher alive can throw 700 pitches a week. Like, it's not humanly possible. And so Phil gets to Toledo, and he's just got a dead arm. And like, I, I think Phil should be thankful that I'm kind of exonerated for 20 years. Everyone's been like, what the hell? This guy had a 68 mile an hour fastball. Like they're throwing harder than that down at the little the local little league diamond. And, um, but now we have some, some context. And so um, I, you know, so many things like that. I mean, like reliving the, um, the 1991 Walker cup when, you know, I had totally forgotten, you know, Phil goes over to Ireland. Oh. It's already overheated because the U.S. had just lost the Walker Cup for the first time in ages, and Phil played really crappy in 89, and so he's got a lot to prove in this 91 Walker Cup. He's the biggest star in the game. He's already won a pro tournament as an undergrad. Like He's legit one of the 10 best players in the world, including the professional ranks, and so this is his swan song for the Walker Cup, and 
the, the European team is stacked. You know, they've, they've got, they've got Pudrig, they've got Paul McGinley. It's the first time it's played in Ireland. Um, there's, there's, a, you know, Andrew Coulter, there's just a lot of energy around this Walker cup. And so in a practice round, Phil hits it into the crowd. And afterwards he gets asked about it by um, a reporter. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to hit it there. The Irish women are not very attractive. <laughs> and it's just, an, I mean, it's funny. I've met some very beautiful Irish women. I don't know if I agree, but it's a funny thing it's to say. It's funny that Phil it's said definitely, it. Yeah, that's, that's, it's absurd. definitely the wrong thing to yeah. say. And it became like an actual international incident. Like the U.S. team is driving away and the, the bus gets pulled over. Phil has to step off the bus and film an apology being demanded by the Irish consulate. And it's just like, it's so fucking funny. And, um, and inevitably... His becomes the most important singles match. And on the last hole, he hits one of the greatest shots of his career under intense pressure. And it's just like, you know, this, this idea that, you know, Phil in this phone call to me, like was, was playing a rascal and maybe put his foot in his mouth. Like he's been doing that his whole life. You know, so one of my, one of my favorite parts of the book is the 1990 U.S. Amateur, oh, which, God. which he wins. I was just getting ready to get to there's this. Some, <laughs> yeah. There's so much great play-by-play there. And, you know, calling up these guys um, that he beaten, you know, in the quarterfinals, they haven't, they haven't talked about this in 25 years. Like they were so delighted to get the phone call and to relive it. And there was so many like incredibly fun Tell the interviews. Jeff Thomas like story. Yeah. All right. So that's another thing. Like I'd heard, I had heard this story many times in Phil's it, it's become part of his legend is it's second round. And Jeff Thomas was like this legendary New Jersey amateur who was quite a baller. You know, he he won he won the Pub Links, got to play in the Masters. He he won a, the I think the Jersey State Open many many times. Like he he was revered, but he was also this semi um, well I don't know. He was a very very edgy character, and he was combative, and he was a trash talker, and he loved the gamesmanship. Um, he was living to play Phil. You know, Phil was this this pretty boy who carried himself like a tour player, had the popped collar has college coach on the bag, like just so punchable, right? Like who wouldn't want to beat Phil Mickelson back then? And, and so Jeff Thomas is just, he's ready to go. And, you know, the first hole, Thomas winds up get, having some issues on the hole. He, he's got, he leaves himself a 40 footer for par and, and Phil's got, he hits a great shot in there. He's got four feet for birdie and Phil just concedes the putt. He's like, just pick it up. And now, you know, four feet's not a gimme. I don't know what the make percentage is on tour. It's not hundred percent. And now he's put this incredible pressure on himself to make this putt, which he does. He wins the hole. And it's just such an alpha move. You know, I, I got Jeff Thomas's caddy to talk about it. John Garrity, who was the man on the scene for Sports Illustrated. And, you know, it was just, and, you know, some Phil quotes from back in the day. Like, so again, this was just something I'd kind of heard about. I didn't know the details. I didn't really know that much about Jeff Thomas. And then you, you dig deep and Jeff Thomas turns out to be a fascinating character. I gave, I gave a lot of space to, and, you know, again, that moment tells you so much about the young Phil Mickelson. I mean, it's the cockiest thing you could ever do on a golf course. And then there's this quote, which I think is from the same USAM where I, this is the only quote I think I wrote down from the book, which is I'm playing as good as I've ever played. Every facet of my game is 100% right now. Whoever I play, I'd be intimidated if I were them. Why shouldn't they be as an amateur? <laughs> Next up, episode 575 with Justin Thomas talking about his second major championship win and his relationship with Bones. I mean, I was pissed off. Uh, there's no other way to say it. I mean, I just was, uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, and it's uh, not to, to call him out by any means, but what's the, the, the guy that wrote the article about Rory Kevin, and I? 
KVB, like, yeah. That, that's honestly like pretty pretty similar to how I felt. I mean, it just was like a another major buy, another great opportunity, and another one that it looks like you know I have a pretty good chance to not win. And just sometimes, I mean, my game felt fine. It was like it was a really tough day, and like I, I just you know I, I felt like I played a lot better than four over. I mean, four over is never a good score, but being out there in enough major championships, you know that. And a lot of us know that like you can, sometimes you can still play pretty well and, and shoot, you know, over par, but the timing of it was just terrible. And I just needed to blow some steam off more than anything. It just was, it wasn't as much of like, all right, I need to go like tweak some things. I need to go get this in a better spot. It just was like, I need to not leave the golf course in this frame of mind. Like I, I'm just, I, I really need to make sure that this feeling and this anger and this emotion that I have. And I was like, I don't care if I go to the driver and I hit 20 drivers as hard as I possibly can, like whatever it's going to take for me to get this anger out of me, I need to do. And it just was, I more, so, I probably, we talked more than I hit. I just hit a couple of balls and I just was just like, dang, like, why, why am I doing this? Why does this keep happening? And you know, that's when bones kind of had his realization moment and just talked to me a little bit and same with my dad and it and it was very similar it was different but similar to the PGA in 17 after Saturday I went to the range just to hit a couple balls and it just was kind of like a decompressed kind of moment and in the end I, I think it is honestly a major reason why I won I'm gonna throw this at you and I just want to you get your full reaction to to any of it and it, it this is definitely not a shot at, at Jimmy in any way but it seems like the the dynamic of your relationship with bones as it was to jimmy seems different that it almost seems like uh that bones is there as a i don't want to say an auditor or a, a or an adult in the room but it kind of seems like you are deferring a little bit more to him in that relationship or almost like you gotta go th he, he quizzes you to go through exactly you know what you need to go through before a shot maybe even telling yourself that more than you're telling him and uh, I don't really know if there's a question related to that or if there is something. If yeah. you get a sense of like, you know, you know, when it comes down to these important moments, his way of getting through, getting you through something seems to have an effect on you. It's just different. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the, I mean, there's, I've joked with, with him and with Tiger about like Lacaba. I mean, obviously he's one of the best caddies in, in the world and like he's unbelievable at what he does, but like, I know for a fact that him and I would not work together. Like it's just, <laughs> it's one of those things like his personality and his demeanor and how he goes about things versus me. Like sometimes I just kind of need to bitch a little bit and let some stuff out. And and if sometimes the caddy and like, I've said that to bones before, I'm like, look, dude, like I'm going to say something. And I said to Jimmy, I'm like, I am going to say some things to you that may be kind of passive aggressive, maybe directed towards you. I'm like, but just know it's, it's likely not personal it's just me needing to get it out and like, don't take anything the wrong way. And like, if you want to talk about something after that's fine, but I was like, it's just weird, but sometimes that's what I need to do. And I just know for a fact that if I did that with someone like Joe LaCava, he might hit me upside the face. So it's just, it's one of those things where every caddy is so different and they're unique in that aspect. And, you know, they're the thing that's been good with bones is because we're, I mean, we're still in the beginning process. I mean, we're not even a year in, is that we're still trying to, you know, even after every couple of weeks, we're like, what could I do different? What could you do different? I mean, like I just told him it literally at the US Open, I'm like, Bones, this is going to sound really childish. I'm like, but it, it, I don't really like it when you pull my putter out when I got a wedge in my hand before I hit it. I'm like, it gets <laughs> in my head and it freaks me out. And he's like, I, I get it. Done. I don't really understand. So, you know, it's it's little things like that. Like we're, we're just kind of continue to learn each other a little bit. 
I mean, it's very different. I'm sure Bones is able to have a little bit more conversation with his player now than in past in terms of talking him out of things or maybe or getting him in situations. But at the same time, it, it, it ends up being uh, being good for me as well. Next up, episode 600 with Shane Lowry, another sneaky one from this year, uh, talking about his experience at Royal Port Rush. Do you know what? That first tee Thursday was the most nervous I've ever been on the first tee of a tournament my whole life for some reason. I didn't build the tournament up to myself that I, you know, obviously I wanted to go and win. I was hopeful that I go and win, but I didn't, I didn't have it like marked going, right, I want to prepare and do do everything I can to win this tournament. I was more so I want to go there and perform as best I can and get myself, if I get myself in the hunt on Sunday, it'll be brilliant. Um, I had all my, my whole team was there, my family, everybody was there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hit, I hit a good tee shot there and I actually I shot four under in the first round and I remember coming off the course and this is obviously how well I was playing at the time I remember coming off the course going oh that wasn't great you know what I mean probably should have shot a better score and and then I led the whole day I remember I led the whole day and we were watching the golf in the afternoon and JB Holmes was out really late and he held a, a birdie put on the last to kind of take the lead from me which I was a bit kind of oh whatever but yeah the most nervous I've ever been in the first day of a tournament in my whole life I think it, it the tee shot in general, though, the tee shot is very, very, it's a smelly tee shot. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> how it bounds both sides. You know, the, the grandstands are surrounding you, so you can't really feel where the wind is coming from. And, yeah, it's just a really tricky tee shot. And, obviously, Rory didn't get on very well with it. But, um, yeah. Well, and that ovation on one kind of lasted almost a little too long for you. It sounded like you wanted to get into your routine. and they, Yeah, you know, on they the, were I, remember, <laughs> I do remember on the Saturday because I was leading Going into Saturday, I was playing with JB Holmes and uh, I stood on the first tee and, and they were like, uh, I'm on the tee from Ireland, Shane Lowry. And I was like, and I was ready to hit my shot and the crowd were still like going bananas in the grandstand. And I'm like, I just want to hit the shot and get this out of the way because it is almost one of those shots where you want to just get out of the way. And that Saturday went very well for me. And that was, you know, those last four holes in Saturday was probably the, the reason I won the tournament. I mean, it, it, first of all, you don't want to get too amped up to hit an iron off the tee anyways, no. right? You know, you want to get amped up to hit a driver, maybe. But is it possible to have – is it – this might be a really dumb question, but is it as fun as it looks to play amazing golf in that scene, right? Are you in the moment? Are you able to, like, have fun? We see the smile on your face as it's happening, but are you having as much fun as it looks like, or is there inner turmoil that kind of prevents you from having that much fun? No, you're not having that much fun. You're not. Uh, <laughs> There was a couple of times where I kind of stood back and was like, wow, this is unbelievable. Uh, I remember, like I vividly remember on, on the 17T on Saturday, because we're the final group and you look down and the 17T is up high and, and you look down and it's just like thousands of people everywhere. And I hit my tee shot and I call my caddy back. He's gone walking ahead and I call him back and I'm like, right, Bo, and I'm, I'm seven under for the round. And I call him back. I'm leading by two or three. I'm leading by three at the time. I call him back and I'm like, right, ball. I'm like, let's enjoy this next 20 minutes because who knows if this will ever happen to us again. And like, it was just incredible. And then I birdied 17 and I hit two good shots in the last and just missed them. I enjoyed that kind of half an hour more nearly than the Sunday. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those where I really let it, uh, let it sink in. But then it's just, it's just pure. The next... The next 12 to 24 hours was just filled with pure fear because I felt it's almost like I spoke about Wentworth and standing over that five iron and it's either, you know, it's either going to be great or awful. Um, that's how I felt. And I said it to my coach on the Sunday morning of the Open. I says, 
well, there's no, there's no, it's either first or last for me today. There's no second place. If I finish second, I might as well finish last because it's either going to be the best day of my career or it's either going to be the worst. Um, because I, I do feel like if I didn't win that tournament from there, that I probably would have taken it very hard. Next up, one of our more recent ones, episode 627 with Roger Steele, a uh, great content creator who I really encourage you guys to check out. Uh, he's got a great series called Range Talk on Callaway Golf's YouTube channel. Uh, here he is talking about that series. I'm saying it's just like that, dog. Yep. You know, because a lot of the people, like, you know, I'm, I've been fortunate enough, uh, fortunate enough, so everybody that I've had on Range Talk, I'm a fan of. You know what I mean? And so I, I already have these these intimate conversations that I've either had with them or I got a bunch of questions that I've always wanted to ask them already. And then when you get into these environments and you start feeling people's energy and understanding their level of comfort discussing things, it's just the conversations flow so seamlessly. And, I, you know, I've just been blessed with everybody that's come on the show being willing to engage with me and be transparent with me and open up to me in certain ways. You know, they all come on there and treat me like we homies and, and we've been homies for a while. And the dope part about that is after we leave that we, we like our relationship actually grows in like a very meaningful way, which is crazy, man. Like we started that show off with Steph Curry last year. And I'm like, yo, bro, when, when Steph pulled up, we did this at Stanford practice facility. And when Steph pulled up, bro, I was so nervous. Me and Steph, I'm a grown ass man, just nervous to me, Steph. I see him across the driving range, and then somebody says, Steph here. I see him, bro, spill coffee all over my shirt, dog. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? That is crazy. But then Steph woke up, and he like, Raj, man, I'm so excited about this, and I've been following you for a minute, man. He showed me these videos, and he was, like, making fun of my swing, and he never sent it to me or whatever. You know what I mean? And it was just like, man, you know, this game of golf is so crazy, and it's, you know, the – the degrees of separation just get reduced so much through this sport. And, and it's been an amazing opportunity just connect, to connect with those people and, and show how relatable the game of golf is to the elites, to people that are just, you know, amateurs, recreational players. Like we all get so close through this game. It's so funny. I got literally in my questions here is do you get nervous before the red light goes on before you ha interview somebody like Steph Curry? That's literally one of my questions I had. Steph, when you hey, that. Steph had, hey, Steph had me shook, dog. He, <laughs> hey, it was just because he snuck up on me because, you know, you kind of pacing around like yeah. I'm over there practicing how I'm about to shake bro hand. Like, all right, I'm going to like this. <laughs> Lean in, touch the back. I'm gonna touch the back because that's the turn. That's endearment right there. But I ain't gonna act like I know him too much. And then bro just kind of popped up out of nowhere. I'm like, oh shit, oh damn. <laughs> like man, it's like he wasn't supposed to be here for another ten minutes, dog. What you doing? You know. So it was. But yeah, he he wanted he wanted to have me shook up a little bit. But for the rest of them, they all be pretty cool, man. You know. Next up, episode five ninety with Davis Love the Third talking about the evolution of captains' picks on the U.S. team. What what how has the process for evaluating captains picks uh, evolved over the years? How do stats factor in course fit, team fit? How does that work now? And I'm wondering if that has changed in your time, both as a player and your first time being captain, uh, head captain in, in 2012. A, a dramatic change again. Jack Nicholas just asked Jeff Sluman. He said, "Hey, you know all these guys. Why don't you come be my assistant and help me figure out, you know, what I'm doing and who to pick and." how to make pairings one year. I think it was Jack's first year. He said, Oh, well, Davis and Fred, you guys help me with the pairings. Cause I don't know who like, who likes who and who plays well together. Now it's, it's statisticians. We have four assistants and plus we have tiger. We have a lot of input into the captain selections and into the, the stats. And obviously your gut has to, when you come down to two guys and the stats say one thing and 
you go, well, wait a minute, this is a great partner for this guy. And I know this guy's putter better than the stats. And so a lot of times it's, um, it's just a combination of factors, but it's completely changed. I mean, Ken Venturi is just winging it when he was captain. And now we're, we have a system that we've been running since 2015 um, in Korea of doing the same thing over and over again, year after year. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, you go, I guess if you go back to 2015, the only U.S. Uh, team to lose was 2018 in France, right? Like every every other President's Cup team has been successful and all the Ryder Cup teams have been uh, successful. Uh, you yeah, know. well, um, that's what Phil, Phil was a big part of uh, the process of getting us. <laughs> he stirred the pot over there in um, 2014, and then we, we took it from there. And um, he was a big part of the, the plan for the future. And he said, we just want to give them the best chance to succeed at every Ryder cup or presence cup. And we have to have consistency and continuity. I think that's what we've done is the preparation. We have the same, we've just added our stats guys from the Ryder cup. We've brought them on for the president's cup team. We're kind of like, I compare it to team USA basketball. It's a year round thing we're doing to get the international teams ready to play. And Sure, Ryder Cup's different than President's Cup. It's a it's a different match, um, different team we're playing, but it's the same preparation. Our stats guys went to Quail Hollow. They're breaking down the course. We were talking today about green speed and um, you know what, how's it going to play compared to in in uh, September versus playing it in May. How's that going to favor our team versus their team? It's, there's a lot more that goes into it. So we're picking for golf course for pairings for statistics strokes gain t to green things that are hard to understand and the, the stats guys help us break it all down and and put it into a manageable package where us just uh, average golfers can understand it next up episode 537 this is matilda castron talking about uh, her early days playing professional golf it was definitely an adjustment i mean in college we were pretty spoiled we had everything taken care of and like our rent and food and it, like literally everything was taken care of and then all of a sudden you're, you turn pro and you, you're playing on uh, Symmetra now Epson tour and you're on your own. I had a lot of friends there. Uh, I traveled with, a, with three girls and we were a pretty tight group, but it was still a big adjustment golf-wise. I mean, you had to play well to make the cut and make any money. Otherwise, it was just a huge expense for the, for the week and uh, you're not making anything. So it was quite stressful for me financially. I think I was a little too focused on the results in the beginning and just trying to kind of stay afloat. Not really happy with how I was playing. But after the first year, I kind of took a break and uh, I talked to I talked to my family and my my sponsors and uh, I actually worked in a in a wine store for a month over Christmas and uh, I had like a schedule nine to five pretty much and. I got, I got paid consistently, which was cool. I had never had that before. Yeah. So I was like, wow, this is what it's like. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, okay, I don't think this is for me. I really want to really appreciate like, the golf life more and being a professional golfer and just put all my, all my focus on that and give it a real shot and just see where I can end up. So I think my second year I had like a much better perspective and I was a lot happier wasn't that focused on the results and more like the 
the journey and the bigger picture, and I think that really helped me getting my my LPGA Tour card. I have to ask: Did you uh, do you know a lot about wine? Did you learn a lot about wine working in the wine shop? Well, I've I've always been like interested in wines, and uh, I heard it's a uh, so in Finland at the wine store is like one wine store everywhere in the country. Oh, okay. So it's kind of, they kind of have a mo- monopoly, and they're known as like it's a good stepping stone for people who want to work part time or. Like, I only work for the winter season, like the Christmas holiday season. My dad actually worked for them when he was younger, so he's like, okay, like, it's a great, great place. They treat um, the employees very well, and uh, the pay is okay, and it's like, okay, you know what, I'll do it. And they trained us, so we had, like, wine tastings every now and then, so we could tell the the, the customers and uh, explain what's in what wine and what to pair it with and stuff like that but I was only there for a month so I can't <laughs> I can't say that I'm like a sommelier now but uh, it was interesting yeah for sure next up is episode 596 with John Simpson the founder of the Simpson Cup we had some incredible stories in that episode talking about his experience with adaptive golf and I highly encourage you to check that one out but you can relate so much to the disabled veterans that are out here is because of your own disability yes I, I was um, I caught polio when I was two, and um, when I was thirteen, I went in to have some operations on my leg that didn't work, and uh, I spent most of that year in hospital, which left me having to. I mean, some of them went well, some of them didn't, so I have to wear a, a sort of brace for the rest of my life, learn how to walk again, and uh, luckily my dad um, was a golfer. I'd never hit a golf ball. And uh, he said, you know, there's one game you can play on this level playing field, it's golf. I remember a story very vividly. I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't walk very well. Um, And it was a hot summer in Britain. And I got some clubs of my dad's or whatever, and uh, I hid behind the caddyshack so no one could see me because I used to fall over most of the time. And then he told me that he had a friend, my father, was a doctor who um, he would like me to meet and that's all I remember so about a few weeks later I was standing behind the caddyshack and I heard this loud billowing voice sounding John so I came out and it turned out to be this doctor friend of my father's said come on we're gonna play a few holes now I'd never been on the golf course and I was terrified so I said no 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 no." so he really bellowed again come on we'll do it so i went up there and to cut a long story short we ended up playing three holes and um, i must have been without exaggeration took me four shots to get to his drive turned out he played off six and just on uh, it i got to the second hole before he turned around to me and said if you want to play this game you have to walk quicker than that and I thought, Christ, how could he talk to me like that? I've got a bad leg. For, you know, I've been in hospital, my leg hurts. But, and he just repeated it again. And he was quite a tough guy. You know, I was only 13. I thought, oh, dear me. So I forget the golf. I just did, kept up with him. Forget the golf. I couldn't get anywhere close to him. Got in the clubhouse. And he didn't say anything. Went into the changing room. And he waited till everybody left. Just looked at me. 
And without saying anything, he dropped his trousers. And I thought, oh, this is going to be an end to a great day. And I can't run away. This is great. And he took his trousers down and he had one leg amputated below the knee. And the other one was in such a mess, I couldn't look at it. And he said, John, never, ever complain about your leg because nobody wants to hear about it. Come on, let's go and have a drink. And I was 13. So I said, great. So, and he was a doctor that lost his leg in the Second World War. He wasn't a doctor. He got the military cross, which is a very high medal. Lost his leg in Italy and became a doctor five years later. Next up, episode 598 with Tom Kim. This was before he blew up all over the President's Cup. We were all over this one. Uh, he was super eager to, to talk to us, and uh, we can't wait to have this guy back. 598 with Tom Kim. This, this next part's always difficult because, you know, you don't, uh, there's not much of a reward for being, for having hubris or overconfidence publicly in golf or in sports in general. Yet at the same time, internally, you need to channel a certain level of confidence to be able to compete at any level. So, when did you know you were as good as you are? When did you know you could compete at the highest level of professional golf? I'm giving you an invite to brag on yourself here, so go ahead, go ahead. But internally, you know, how, how, when did you know? You're not gonna like this answer, but to be honest, I still don't feel like, like I don't think I'm ready yet. Like I'm just like you know, I'm still trying to learn. Like I'm only I'm only 20, and these guys have so much more experience, and they are so much better than me. Yet, you know, I've. I've won once on the PGA Tour and it's been life-changing. Yes, it's been a great experience, but how can I make this and keep on going and have a better career? You know, I don't want to be like a kid who had a great start of his career and kind of faded away. I want to I want to contend for major championships. I want to play in the best, you know, the best field in the world. And just to answer your question, no, I do not feel like I'm ready. You know, I, I have so much to learn. And it's just started this year. I all the guys that I'm playing with now, I've looked up to them for, you know, for all my life. So for me to be able to have the chance to play in the same field as them and for me to have a chance to learn and look at their stats because obviously being playing on the PGA Tour, the stats are unbelievable. So, you know, so I'm just I'm just trying to learn and trying to get better every day. And hopefully hopefully one day, you know, maybe in the future, if we do another podcast, like I, I can tell you, I, I'm ready now. Let's do it. <laughs> well, I'm going to flip this. I'm going to flip this on you then because, all right, if you don't feel like you're ready, you're in contention of a PGA Tour event on a Sunday and you go out in 27 on a Sunday, right? First of all, how are you not convincing yourself you're ready at that point? But that that must mean you got to be internally freaking out nerve-wise. That doesn't permeate on TV. We don't see that on TV if you are, but tell me you were at least nervous if that was the case. Oh, it was I was shaking my my boots off like it was okay. it was yeah, it was uh, I couldn't really take my putter back. Like it was like front nine like I putted great and obviously like it's been it's happening so fast, you don't really realize it, but once I got to the 10th hole and I bogeyed the 10th hole, I, I start to feel a little bit like a little bit nervous, I would say, just because I have a back nine that I can kind of realize my dream kind of feeling, but it never got to my head. But once I had a good, like I ha- had a hard bogey, it could have been a great part, but I had a hard bogey and I played 11. I told myself 10, 11, 12, if I can get through that pretty easy, it's going to be, it's going to be hard to catch me. Cause I had, I think I had a four shot lead going to the back nine. I'm not really sure, but for some reason I felt so calm and I just stayed in the moment. You know, I just felt like for some reason that week, I just felt so patient with myself. We had a lot of rain delays and for some reason, I just felt like something special was going to happen that weekend. Uh, for some reason, I, I took it all in on the 18th hole. And um, that's when I kind of really let, let loose of my emotions. 
Next up is episode 607 we did with Lynn Marriott and Pia Nilsson from Vision 54. We did a little different episode in this one. We basically used their expertise to give a coaching lesson to Neil live on the podcast. There's a lot of back and forth in this one. Love this episode. Uh, Number 607, Lynn Marriott and Pia Nilsson. So when you play and you play well, so share with us what you do before the shot. But you what's, know, you're, what's, you're, what's your, you know, all of us, you know, we call it the think box, but before the shot, then what do you like to focus on during the swing or motion when you play well? Yeah. If I can just interject here, I want to set the scene yeah. a little bit for Neil, that he was a college football player. He hits it very far. He has, is very athletic and is, I've seen over the years, him honing with a focus in on golf, how much he's improved in it. So he has incredible physical skills and I, if I may say unlimited potential, I I just want to set that part of the scene for, for the conversation because of how, how much better he's improved and how, uh, how, how well he hits the ball. Thank you, Solid. Yeah. Appreciate that. I've never told you that. Well, but you know what they say: the you know worst thing in the world is wasted talent, right? So that's why golf can be a little bit of a. It can be tough for me because I do feel oh. like I should be playing. You know, I should be scoring okay. better. Yeah. yeah. So tell me okay. how do what do you do there before the shot? Because well, just want to check up up on what you're doing. So yeah. you know. So I've come off the tee, um, and I would say pretty much every shot, you know, other than maybe chipping and putting, I have a good like free throw routine. And uh, actually, Max Homa, talking to him on a show we did, Strapped, years ago, he was like, you have to, you have to find a free throw. He, he told me, he was like, you're doing something different on every tee shot. And, do, and so I've come to a, you know, one practice swing. I kind of find my, you know, my feel or almost my trigger. And then I pick my target. I step up. I do, I do usually one waggle. I kind of set my shoulders, and then I go. And when I stick mm-hmm. to that, you know, some days you have the feel. I'm a, I'm, I, I do sense that I'm a when I'm playing my best I'm playing athletically kind of with with feel um yep. so I find that when I see my swing like on camera it starts to make me try to perfect it instead of just you know playing my swing and I think that yeah. that's worked now for the past year and a half or so because I used to skip around to different swing feels right and then you start stacking swing feels and yeah. it spins out of control you got to start all over again I've, and they become uh, swing thoughts. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I've done a really good job the last year, I think, of sticking to, you know, a, a very specific routine, and I think yeah. it's really helped me off the tee. And I would say that's why my handicap is, has fallen. It um, sounds it sounds really good, and it sets you up for being more sensory and athletic. But when, since you talk about the making not so good decision at times, so what, is it decision making before? How do you do that? Because obviously before, that before you go into your free throw routine. Yeah. yeah. Is that, I think is that where you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's decisions around. So we did another show with Mark Leishman's caddy, uh, Maddie Kelly, who lives here in Jacksonville. We went out to our local course and we played the, uh, you know, the forward tees. And the goal was for me to break par from the forward tees with a professional caddy. And, you know, spoiler alert, I, I shot four under. And a lot of the reason I shot four under was because he was on the bag. And there was a specific hole, the tent, it was the first number one at Jack's Beach, but our 10th. And the front bunker was like 205. And I said, he's like, well, that's, you know, five iron. And I said, well, in my head, I always want to like buy a little extra insurance. So I was like, instead of hitting four, I was like, well, let's just hit driving iron. Let's take the bunker out of play. And he was like, no, we're going to hit we're going to plan for a good shot. And I think that that is something that I still struggle with is that I try to, I see, I get zeroed in on one issue. 
And that's left over from you a time period where you didn't hit every shot pure. Exactly. You hit almost every shot pure now. Yeah, and so it's like I, I, I was like, ah, well, if I hit a perfect five iron, I'd probably carry that bunker by one yard. And, well, okay, well, let's just, let's just club up. And, and then, well, guess what? You hit a good four iron, it's going to go 215, and you're going to be over the green, right? And yeah. so yeah. I have a bad habit of, like, taking that first piece of trouble out or getting, getting locked in on that probably – especially when I don't have a caddy to talk through it with. So also mm -hmm. Maddie talked to me off. He said, we're hitting five iron. Of course I hit it to 10 feet. I made, you know, Eagle there. And it was just kind of a wake up call for me of like, uh, you know, and he was like, yeah, you have to plan. He's like, Mark and I always plan to hit a good shot. Cause if you're not doing that, that if you're not starting from the best outcome, you know, or we're going to play away from trouble, but like from a, you know, a, a yardage standpoint, we have to plan to hit the shot. Well, Right. And, and if you're, yeah, absolutely. You, you and not, not have this state of avoidance. Exactly. Because you're, you're a good yeah. enough player. If you had a 20 handicap or 25, it might be different. But now mm -hmm. it's a, you know, whatever, one, two, that's really smart. So it seems like, is there a chance for you to have a good caddy that you can play a few rounds with to just learn how to talk through decision making differently for yourself? I think, you know, it's, I don't, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, maybe. I've tried. Listen, some of these things that Maddie was telling him, I've told him for four years, and all of a sudden he's like, he's like, oh, man, that made a lot of sense. Conservative yeah. targets, aggressive well, swings. I'm like, I've been telling you that for years. Normally, Solly, normally I'm competing against Solly, and that's it, it <laughs> okay, matters who's okay. giving you the coaching. <laughs> Next up, episode 562 with Mel Reed. We were previewing the U.S. Women's Open, and she tells some stories about her Olympic experience. I wish that I could have had some of my family there. I wish I could have had Carly there. I wish that I could have brought my coach out there. Like we couldn't have any of that, which I found quite weird in a certain way because I was like, this is, you know, supposed to be like the, the pinnacle of sport and we can't even, I can't even have a, one coach here. Like that to me was a bit odd, but just being at the Olympics and being around other athletes was like someone who grew up playing multi sports. Like that was, I never thought I would ever play an Olympics being a golfer. And so to actually have that opportunity and to go and play in Olympics was by far like one of the coolest experiences. And like the cool thing about it, right? So this is one of the, so the food hall is the biggest thing you've ever seen. Like it's huge, it's massive. And whatever food you want, it's available 24 seven. There's different stations everywhere. And I just loved watching what other athletes ate. Like you get these big bodybuilders, like these huge guys and they've got like a 16 egg omelet and like four chicken breasts for breakfast and you just like I, I was just fascinated I mean I think I'm in shape I mean literally these these athletes are just insanely in shape I mean it's just it, it's incredible like it almost I almost worked out too much during that week because I just like I was like one I need to get in shape more but two I just wanted to like train with all these athletes so we had a separate gym team GB and just to train with all these athletes I just this is awesome bmx guys squatting what they were squatting i was like this is just like everything about it was just i was in awe of and honestly it just gave me a whole new appreciation for how hard these athletes work and we're very fortunate that we can earn money at what we do 90 percent of these athletes really don't like i was talking to a bunch of the hockey girls and they were telling me like what their grant is and i was like and they're like yeah you know we've, we've trained for this for four years and i'm just like that it was just a new it was very humbling to be honest it was just a new appreciation for for any kind of olympic sport to be honest i don't know how to ask the question without without spoiling the story but tell us about the like what it was like for team gb or, or where you where you were staying in the village when when uh, somebody would come back from a from a successful event oh so we so 
it was obviously like everyone gets up for it. So they walk in. I have no idea who they are. They've just got a gold medal around their neck. And everyone's just cheering and then you're chatting to them. And so this was the thing. So where our block was, was right by the Olympic rings in the village. And so when people finish their event, they just get hammered. There was literally a party every single night. And like you, you couldn't sleep. It was almost so loud outside. Like they've got loads of music on, like everyone's boozed up. Like they haven't drank in like four years. So everyone's absolutely hammered after like one Bud Light. And so they're all just like, screaming. they're jumping in the, the water and all this stuff. And so that was the only tricky thing was like, we definitely didn't get adequate sleep, but whatever. I mean, it's Olympic Games and these guys have just won a gold medal. So, and, and girls have just won a gold medal. So allowed. But yeah, I mean, it was just carnage. Like when they come in with, it was just cool just to see all these medals just walking in and you're just like, that's so cool. Like these guys have given up their whole life to do this and they did it. They are the best at what they do in that given day. And it was just, it was just really, really cool to see. Another weird question to ask, and I don't know how to ask, but uh, it's it's widely circulated how much there is uh, activity between other athletes in the <laughs> Olympic Village. Was it like that? Was it like that? Uh, you know, it, with it, in this weird COVID Olympics, did you experience any of that? Not, I'm not saying you, but did you see that it going on in any other locations? So, Des, my my caddy at the time, I think he's put on his Tinder profile. He's a two time Olympian, and I'm like, okay, right, I know where this is going. So. He was like, I'm 100%. There's no way I'm not getting laid this week. Like, I'm just, I, I've, got, I've got to. Like, it's the Olympic Games. And I was like, okay. And he, even he can get laid. So I think the COVID restrictions were a little bit more. I mean, he can't get laid at the best of times. But that was, if he was ever going to get laid, it was going to be that week. So poor buddy. But yeah, I mean, I didn't, I don't think it's been as bad because I think they tried to restrict it a little bit. Obviously, they didn't want people, like, we had security outside our blocks, right? Like, you couldn't get in without your credential. But yeah, poor Desi. That was his one week and no. Maybe maybe in 2024. It's right around the corner. Yeah, three-time Olympian then, wasn't he? On his Tinder profile. <laughs> Next up, episode 620. This was just last month with Xander Shoffley talking about his major championship journey. What has that journey been like for you uh, pursuing a major championship win? Yeah, awesome. It's been really fun. You know, pretty much exactly what I envisioned as a kid. Uh, being in the hunt at a major is, is pretty hard to describe. Um, and yeah, so some of those top fives are probably, you know, a Sunday, a lower score on Sunday, and I was in 12th, and then I shot into the top five. So that is a rewarding Sunday and a rewarding golf tournament. Like, hey, you know, we, we did, you know, a good week. Some of those are, you know, was in the lead or close to the lead and, you know, had a meltdown along the way or had some big score come in. Those hurt more, obviously, than the others. Um, but, you know, it's, it is so fickle uh, in my mind uh, in the, in the high ranks of golf, just even in the top, I'd say 50 on the PGA tour. It's really fickle. You know, it's such a, such a tight line. You, you, know, you try and walk and I have to just remind myself of that every day that man in the chase to become better, you can pr probably get way worse pretty easily. So I need to be pretty patient in my process of what I need to make better to give myself a real opportunity. And so in order for me to win a major, I haven't done it, you know, and I have ideas of what I need to do to do it. But, you know, I'd say I've had plenty of game to get it done um, just now. Uh, and I just either need to be in the correct wave, uh, get off, to, you know, get off to a better start, uh, have the right sort of mindset throughout the week. There's so many little things that come into play that can affect sort of uh, 
my ability or what's going to you know push me over the edge and so my whole plan is to just try and make myself so much better um at certain things that even if i'm not firing you know at all on all cylinders i still will have a chance you know i i think right now in our sport there's just a couple guys that really you know off the top of my head obviously our current number one in the world you know scotty played unbelievable uh, he had a, a nice run there as number one and um, I'm sure he'll get back there at some point, but Rory's play, played just, he kind of like, you know, he hits it so far that he pretty much will always be in, in, in like in every hole and he will always have an opportunity to score and, and, and get a score because he, he'll take advantage of par fives and certain things. Such a comfortable place that, yeah, he is, he is a true number one right now, and he does play like it week in, week out. And, you know, he play, he's played an unbelievable stretch of golf. And you imagine throughout, you know, no, no one can play perfect golf for eight months. You know they're going to play some crabby golf in between, and that hasn't really showed on his card, which means that his crabby golf is pretty damn good. And, I, you know, I want to get to that point where whether it's firepower that I need to increase, whether it's my iron play, you know, I, I pick it apart with my team every year. and That's what we all do, do you know what I mean? And it is a tough journey because if you are really good at something and you need to try and get better at something else, you kind of go where the fire is burning and all of a sudden you leave kind of your, the rest of your game aside to try and get better at one thing. And then now you're playing this teeter totter, you know, with your entire game and your golf swing. And it just, instead of just trying to maintain what you have and, and being okay with what you have. So I'm on this sort of slow patient grind of trying to get like incrementally better uh, in certain areas without losing certain parts of my game. Next up, another one from episode 590 with Davis Love III talking about uh, his experience on the PGA Tour uh, policy board and how he has gone about with changes. And just he shares a wealth of experience as the PGA Tour is again going through a massive changing period. I really appreciated his insight on a lot of things. And this is just a little snippet of that. Well, it's been challenged back in 94, like you said, because of Greg Norman bringing this point up and trying to do the world tour common thing it's, it's been challenged now but it's also been challenged a couple times by the irs or the federal government looking into us as a tax-exempt organization so we have we were granted that a long time ago we've had to defend that a couple times uh, on capitol hill and the reason we end up the irs makes a judgment yeah your audit's fine and your business plan is fine and you're giving so much money to charity and you're growing your business every year exponentially, we're going to continue to sign off on that because you are, you're a unique entity. And so our lawyers and our accountants and the federal government have continued to sign off on this because part of the independent contractor is kind of a, a weird term. We're a member owned organization. If you sign up at the beginning of the year, you conform to these rules you get the benefits of it, but we can't tell you when and where you have to play. Like Pat Perez saying, I had to play. It's just a complete, you know, farce. Where there's 40 tournaments, you have to play 15 to be able to vote next year and to get your benefits, insurance, retirement plan, all those kind of things. So it's, it's a very strange structure. It's not the Dallas Cowboys. We hire you to play on our team you conform to these rules. We give you a whole bunch of money. And if we get tired of you, we'll trade you to somebody else. No, we, we play in a member organization and the rules have been signed off on. Now, you and I and others can sit down and say, yeah, there's some changes probably that need to be. Maybe there's a better model. Maybe there needs to be 
um, a pro for profit rather than a nonprofit. All those things can be discussed. But for right now, like Jay said yesterday to a player asking about rules, yeah, we can change the rules in the future. But right now, <laughs> we have to defend these rules that were written. And my only choice right now is to move forward and defend them until we change them. Trust me, there's always been 20 or 30 guys that complain and argue and fight. There's 20 or 30 guys, and I put myself in that camp, that are supporting the tour, working on the board, player advisory council, whatever. The rest of them just want to go play golf. <laughs> They're Max Homa, and don't try to buy my dream. I'm trying, I'm trying to win on the PGA Tour. Tom Kim is as excited as any person in the world right now. He's living his dream. He always dreamed of playing on the PGA Tour. He just won a PGA Tour event. He became a member. We built a platform, and I just put me as a we small, small part. We built a platform, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, to give these guys a chance. And Tiger and Rory and myself, we don't work for the PGA Tour. We're working for the current players and the future players to give them that platform and let them have the opportunity we had. But it's a very complicated system, and the fans just have to understand that Live can do whatever they want. The players that go there can do whatever they want. But the PGA Tour should not be hostily taken over and become a feeder system to live. And that's ultimately what they want. Next up, episode 572. This is with Madeline Sagstrom. We're talking a little bit in our KPMG Women's PGA preview with her about uh, her experience after our Week in the Life series we did with her on our YouTube channel. How big has Shane's ego gotten since the uh, Week in the Life video? <laughs> people, I, I remember the first few weeks after, people went like, Shane, Shane, Shane. And he's like, who do I owe money now? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, I don't know these people. I was like, well, you're famous now, Shane. <laughs> now I think it's, it's great. It's, but he's, he's the one who's like, he would never think too highly of himself. But uh, it, it was so much fun. It was fun for us as a team, really, because that's really kind of when we started. I still love that part of the video. How long have you guys been working together? One week. <laughs> We're one weekend. But here we are still a year and a half after. So it's, uh, uh, it's been good. It's, it's, he's been so good for my game. And I think that's also been a big, um, big help to why I've played so well. He's so, like you guys, <laughs> very <laughs> the same. Madeline makes a double bogey. That wasn't great. Madeline <laughs> makes an ego. That was good. <laughs> so it's very same. He's great. What's that been like? Uh, has there been any, have you seen any increase in, in interest in your game since the video came out or any addition of uh, new fans or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, it, I still find it a bit weird. Like, you know, when, we, when you play in big group, play with Lexi last week, everyone goes, yeah, Lexi, Lexi. Like, you're used to hearing those, but I hear, go Madeline. I'm like, you know who I am? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> um, I definitely saw a different demographic than I haven't had before. You're, I mean, your followers are... A little bit different than people that have been following me before so that was that's cool though it's cool i mean it's cool that people are are interested and that they enjoy enjoy my journey and what i do and i think it's um that's what i like to see i like to, i like to follow people you'd like to get up close and actually see what life is like so i really enjoyed what you guys did that's what you know providing some access does i think people like people like real it was very 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 real content i thought Next up, episode 617, this is with Mike Clayton. It was hard to find just a little snippet here of a, a long, lengthy dis distance discussion that we had on the podcast with him, but uh, his insight is incredible on all of that. Episode 617, Mike Clayton. 
So this generation have grown up with swings on their phone. They've seen how Tiger swings. They've seen Louis Ustaz and they've seen, they've seen the great swings and they're great imitators. As, as all kids are great imitators. So there's so many great techniques out there now. The problem with the equipment, I think, is that there's now thousands of kids around the world who all want to be golf pros. And some of them are going to make it, but most of them aren't. And the more, the more difficult you make the equipment to use for those guys, the more difficult the driver is to use, the more difficult it is to flight the ball through the wind, the more difficult it is to drive the ball 300 yards. The more you can differentiate the kids with real talent before they turn pro and you know enforce a life of roads and shitty motels and playing mini tours and losing their money and you know, go and get a proper job in a real life rather than try to chase this impossible dream. And, you know, I was lucky enough to play decently as a pro and make a living at it, and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I, I think that the equipment has become, the driver's become such an easy club to use. There, there are thousands of kids around the world who can drive the ball within wedge distance of the green and shoot great scores. So they all think they're good enough to be pros, and, 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 and they are. They're tremendous players. But the biggest favour the RNA and the USGA could do the thousands of kids who all want to be golf pros is make the equipment more difficult to use. So in my era, Greg Seve, who was a great driver despite what people think, Nicholas, obviously, Watson, the great players could flight the ball through the wind with a steel-shafted persimmon driver with a bladder ball. So the great players could... They were just a step ahead because they were so much better with one club because it was really difficult to use that club in the wind with that ball. Now it's it's way easier to, to well you don't have to you know you, to hammer the modern ball through the wind with a graphite shafted head with a frying you know with a frying pan head on it is not particularly difficult relative to what it was forty years ago. So the best players in the world always won the Open. Trevino, Weisskopf when he was playing great, Miller when he had was having a great year. Nicholas was always there. Watson, Norman, was he who, who never won it but played well in the Open because they could flight that thing through the wind difficult ball difficult head difficult shaft in terms of it was heavy head, head was head was small that was one club where the best players could break out of the pack and, and the next lot of clubs was were the long irons those blade the blade one and two and three irons which you know I've got, I can still see Savvy and Greg and hitting those towering one irons that the rest of us couldn't hit so they could break out of the pack just with their skills with the long clubs. You drag the ball back 50 yards, make it more difficult to drive it in the wind, and you can get away from this, this, this thousands of kids who all think they're good enough to play on the Pro Tour when there are only, well, there are 150 spots on the PGA Tour and there are 100 spots on the European Tour and there are 125 spots on the web doc, on the Corn Ferry Tour and there aren't that many jobs. All right, last one here. I want to thank everyone for tuning in all year long. This is episode uh, 588 we did with Sean Zock. He's talking a lot about his experience of caddying for Joel Damon uh, and some of his experiences of, of being in Scotland this summer. It was a great episode we did with him, episode 588. Sean Zock, have a great holiday, everyone, a great new year. We will see you back. Uh, we have a lot of great stuff planned for 2023. Can't wait to announce it. Can't wait to roll it out, and we will see you in the next year. Tell me about caddying for Joel, uh, how that came about and what the what you learned there and what that experience was well, like. Yep, as we discussed, you played a role. Uh, whether or not you want to like downsize your role, I was listening to your podcast while playing the Dukes course here in St. Andrews. Um, it's the least linksy golf course here. It's the most Americanized. But anyways, that's where I was on the 
Monday after Brookline. And I heard him come on there and say, Hey, Solly, I need a caddy. And, you know, Joel and I are friendly. We follow each other on social media, but like, that's pretty much it. And, um, when you said I have vacation plans, I immediately DM'd him. <laughs> I'm like, dude, I'm here. And I know it's expensive as hell to travel right now. And last minute hotels are very expensive. If you need a caddy, let me know. And he got back to me a couple hours later and said, here's my number. Let's talk this through. And I've just learned that like Joel is a pretty dry texter. <laughs> and so like the next text was how much do you want to get paid? And I was like, Oh God, I'd like, <laughs> is this like a bartering system? Is this like one of those, uh, you know, airlines trying to like bump passengers, like the lowest price wins. <laughs> and so I don't even remember what exactly I told him. I basically told him like what Martin trainer paid me. And then he gave me a really, really generous deal. And, uh, I was planning on covering the event as a journalist anyways. And so, oh gosh, sometimes you just need to level up and learn how much you don't know about golf. And I think that was my week of leveling up. Like I said earlier, I'm an eight handicap, right? And I hit like two golf shots that are perfect every round, maybe one golf shot that feels perfect every single round. And when you're caddying for a player of that caliber, you all have to believe because they believe you can find the perfect shot every single time you can find the perfect, uh, you know, analysis of the wind and the place you're going to land it and the amount of spin and the trajectory and the club, whatever. And so it was such a fun challenge for competitive people to do that on a linksy golf course that was extremely firm. And the wind was like way up. Um, you know, that setup actually got players extremely riled up because they couldn't carry it to the fairway on, on Thursday. Um, th- what was, which was, was so sick because like I had caddied for Joel and we were in the morning wave and played like, that was bad. Like we, we played bad in the early wave, which was nice. And so I like went back into the press room, Joel went home and got dinner with his wife. And I like kind of like, I, I fell asleep for like 10 minutes in the press. Room. I was so tired, but then I went out and like started like writing about it. <laughs> And I found Finno and I found Mackenzie Hughes and I found Mackenzie's caddy and Cantlay and all these people were coming in off the golf course, freaking pissed off. And I was like, what, what's going on here? And like, well, the setup was bonkers. It was horrible. And I was like, gosh, Joel and I didn't have a really bad setup in the morning. (laughs) We played horrible golf, but yeah, it was so enlightening to see how a very small, like Joel to be successful has to just be a smarter golfer, right? He has to play the ball low. He has to play the ball on the ground at a, at a firm setup. And he has to be a smarter golfer than some people who are just gripping it and ripping it. And so I feel like I learned a lot and then, you know, he missed the cut, but the real treat of the week was when those guys came over here and I walked around North Barrick with him and Luke List, Luke List's caddy, and uh, Ted Scott was, I think, playing a couple groups ahead of us. Brian Vranish is Siwoo's caddy. He was a couple groups ahead of us. Keith Mitchell had had come over after like his third round, and I really got like baptized in the the tour stop hang, for lack of a better term. Like they were all staying in the Marine Hotel, and we ended up taking it like pretty deep that night, and. I was supposed to be back in Edinburgh. And so I ended up getting a hotel room at the Marine hotel, um, like at frankly at like three in the morning and, uh, you know, 
there was a lot of like people yelling, Sean, this is off the record at me. So I can't share like <laughs> too many details on the podcast, but it was a hell of a night, a hell of a weekend. And like the absolute worst way to get into open week, which is when you're like working from 7am until 11pm. I took up all my energy, like hanging out with Joel <laughs> and then like got properly zapped up in St. Andrews. But again, absolutely no regrets. Joel is a class act. And then he went and just had a nice little Italian vacation with his wife. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything.